what is the strongest argument against Bob Lazar's story that he has, for the most part, kept straight for the last 35, 40 years? Well, this a lot of it is kept straight, I think. Oh, it, well, a lot of it's kept straight because it's like telling a story. It's it's it, it, He's told it so many times. It's kind of like reading a script. It's kind of like you, you just memorized your script and, you, and you're rehearsing. You've rehearsed it and you know your script. So I don't think that, you know, it's not that hard to say that because he hasn't changed this. It doesn't mean the story is true just because he hasn't changed it. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes the story true or not is whether there's, you know, supporting evidence for things. So like we've investigated s4 for example the 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 secret facility at at papoose lake where he claims he he worked for this uh period of time or his timeline his background you know what would even the background check thing we talked about this uh, issue of background checks and um how he got the background check to to even have worked out there and you know have you looked into the guy's background did you do your own background check on him me personally, all I do is just listen to podcasts about them. I haven't done any of the real homework. I haven't looked at any like classified documents or I haven't like subpoenaed the MIT like, or, or Los Alamos labs. But um, I haven't talked to like his former, you know, associates, you know, people who are important figures in the case. That right. D- or what are the biggest holes that you found in his story? Well, the, the biggest holes, I would say, uh, there's a couple of them. Um, so one is this the issue of how he was hired in the first place the background the background check is the biggest hole because it takes normally like eight months or more to to do a thorough background check on an individual um the background checks that investigators and other researchers have done on bob lazar you know show a whole history of this guy would not have passed a background check especially he's he's friends with John Lear, who was the guy who was blowing up the whole UFO story about the base at Area 51. He was on George Knapp on on the record uh, a year before Bob Lazar talking about this top secret base and saying that there was a a subsection with uh, the secret hangar uh, complex that had 11 recovered alien disks in it. And that was John Lear saying- He said there was 11. Yeah, he said there was 11. Bob Lazar said there was nine. And- um, you know, later, you know, was basically confirming John Lear's story that John Lear had already told uh, a year before. And there's just so many elements of Bob Lazar's story that we have tracked down because, I, you know, when it's, if it's easily classified information um, on scientific level, right, like the element 115 stuff. So that's the, that's the real big scientific thing that he supposedly came out with. And, and there's so many misconceptions about that as well that I'd like to spend a minute to clear up. Okay. So one is that, you know, elements are, you know, the element number is based on proton number. That's how many protons are in the nucleus. So hydrogen is number one. It has one proton and one electron. The electrons number balances the proton number so that it has a zero charge. They always like to be neutral. So this issue of the protons is just, it's just addition, man. So you just like, element 115 you know the periodic table goes up to a certain number and then to just predict that it's going to go to higher numbers that we haven't created yet i mean this was figured out back in the 1960s by a guy named glenn seaborg who worked at uc berkeley and he worked on a lot of the particle accelerator experiments that you know 
built the entire, you know, higher half of the periodic table. And while it's interesting, uh, you know, he wrote an article actually in Scientific American in 1969 and published it talking about element, you know, the higher elements and this so-called uh, island of stability. So this island, st island of stability was, was known about by, you know, real physicists working at, you know, UC Berkeley labs and, and, and other places decades before Lazar. I mean, this is people, people misunderstand and misrepresent the physics constantly. And it's, it's good to, it would be good to get, you know, a guy like Eric Weinstein on with uh, Bob Lazar. I, I know that he's, Eric Weinstein has, you know, publicly accepted Joe Rogan's offer for, you know, to have a debate because Joe Rogan put the challenge out there, you know, can we get someone to, to kind of quiz this guy? And, and, and Weinstein finally um, said, you know what, I'll, I'll debate this guy and talk about, you know, physics and, and MIT. And we'll talk about, you know, the, the advanced degrees he supposedly has from MIT and magnetohydrodynamics and see what he knows about, you know, MHD and, and MHD propulsion and, and, you know, get, get him quizzed and see, see what he comes back with. And, you know, what's interesting is Bob has always said that he would do a technical interview with a group of scientists. You know, he said that in one of the earlier interviews that he gave, he's like, oh, I'd be happy to do this. And then Japanese television set this up and invited him over and he never showed up. Really? Yeah. This was back in the, like the nineties. Okay. And, um, you know, so he's never given that technical debate with scientists. He's never debated with scientists. In fact, you know, the first time Joe Rogan had him on the podcast, he had physicist Sean Carroll on like the next podcast and didn't ask him anything about Bob Lazar. And I was like, why wouldn't you ask, you know, the physicists about Bob Lazar and what, what they have to say about his story? And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the, the key thing of Bob's story is the element 115, which he says is how the, the, the power source and, and the... um also the anti-gravity propulsion source for how these things fly and he claimed you know he people claim he predicted it back in 1989 um there's lots of other people who predicted it including you know back in the six the, the 1960s the glenn seaborg knew that there was going to be elements up that high you know and he even predicted the element the the island of stability there and there was actually an article that was published in scientific american in may 1989 which is the exact month and year that bob lazar first came out with his story and it's on page 68 of the May 1989 issue of Scientific American, and it's called Super Heavy Elements, and it talks about the island of stability in element 115. Um, but it, nowhere in any of this is any mention that it has anti-gravity properties or, you know, energy, you know, production properties. So that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the big thing. We've discovered element 115, and people, the, like mm -hmm. the, the Corbells and everyone, try to claim that that means that you know, oh, it, it can, it, they've confirmed Bob Lazar's story because they, you know, he predicted it in, in, in 1989 and then they discovered it years later. So that confirmed his story. No, mm -hmm. it didn't. He, he, he claimed that there was a stable isotope and that it, it had anti-gravity properties. So now we never discovered a stable isotope and that's one of the main arguments that's used to dismiss it. But it's also true that certain isotopes like hafnium for example or lanthanum there's like blurs in the periodic table where these elements can actually jump back and forth a little bit and um you know bob lazar kind of describes that in, in some of his physics semi-technical talks about the reactor and its components you know mm -hmm. um he talks about this it jumping up to element 116 and then back down and that it kind of um or, or 14 mm -hmm. you know he's not sure if it was four to 14 or, or or to 16 or not but um it jumps it jumps around somewhere in there and there's elements that actually do that and you can take these 
st unstable elements and you can stabilize them within, you know, an electromagnetic field, for example, like a magnetic bottle. So you can kind of, you know, hold this unstable nuclei together so that it doesn't decay like uh, in, a, in a normal time. So, so it's possible that there may be some way to isolate and stabilize element 115 that we haven't discovered yet. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, so I'm not saying that it's com been completely debunked. You'll almost, you can't ever disprove a negative. You, it's, it's, it's not up for me to debunk Bobbles are it's up for, you know, him and Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp to prove that he's telling the truth or come up with some supporting evidence for a story or, or documentation. And the kind of documentation I would be looking for hasn't come out. So, so Bob Lazar, some, some more records of his educational background, which he claims to have these degrees, advanced degrees, and have gone to these schools. Um, which there is evidence, right? So the evidence came out, right? It's interesting because he had a court case in, in 1991 and on his court documents, he, he, he stated that he had a, his bachelor's degree was from Pacifica University, which is a correspondence university. And what year do you say this? It was shut down in, in it was shut down in the early nineties as, as being a degree mill. So this was like 91, I think was the, the conviction. So it was like two, two years after he came out with the story. So this place called Pacifica was selling degrees. Like yeah. Selling. Okay. That's where he put. So the court case is interesting too, because apparently, you know, he, he, he had, you know, become this whistleblower about this big top secret program that he was hired to be this senior staff physicist on. And that, um, you know, afterwards he, he, he was, um, after, you know, two years later, he's, running a brothel he's literally running a brothel that's what he gets he well he wasn't he wasn't running the brothel he was uh there was a madame who was running the brothel it was called the crystal cove and his he actually got arrested for um setting up a cctv camera system in the apartment complex and he was they were filming and blackmailing you know customers for of, of the brothel is know? there proof that he tried to blackmail people it's a court case he pleaded guilty to it yeah, oh, yeah you can look it up it. in Nevada. Yeah, you can look it up in Nevada. So it's there. And and um, there's a video of it online. And there's even videos of George Knapp talking about the incident, how he's like, he just, you know, brought this big scientist whistleblower out. And here goes the whole story because, you know... <laughs> Right. And, and apparently it didn't, it wasn't enough to make it go away. And a lot of people still don't know about that and that it happened, but mm -hmm. the court documents from that case, he lists his, he lists his degree was his bachelor's degree was from Pacifica university, not MIT or Caltech. He doesn't say that. And he says that his, um, uh, he had some, I don't know. He said something about university of Cal, Cal Northridge. I, I got to look up the, the documents from that court case, but it's on, it's on there. You can look it up. Uh, there's a whole website, um, boblazardebunk.com where people can get like mm -hmm. a lot of these, um, documents and, and other stuff. And other researchers have done, uh, stuff on this too, including, a, a, an account on Twitter called signals Intel. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, there's not a lot of traction online with people that are trying to pick apart his story and like doing it successfully until I became aware of you that I really start to notice some of these details because, yeah. you know, people aren't looking for, because the Bob Lazar story is such a fantastical story. It's awesome. I mean, that's what got me into researching UFOs and black projects and, and thinking the government has this stuff that, that, and, uh, you know, movies like independence day in, in 1997, where they have that scene where they go into the mm -hmm. underground hangar yeah. and it's, they say, Oh, we got this from Roswell and all. So how, from the time you first learned about Bob, how long did it take for you to start to question everything? Um, I didn't start questioning it until I really started going on like forums, like above top secret and, and other forums where I was really 
arguing in favor of the case with a lot of more knowledgeable researchers about it. And they, they sent me to a lot of interesting links, which educated me about, you know, background checks mm-hmm. and uh, Bob Lazar's timeline that he borrowed a lot of money in his past, that he, he had a lot of debts. He, mm-hmm. he also was apparently, um, you know, he said, he claimed that he, his clearance was revoked, right? About for, um, the purpose of they, they, he claims that his wife was having an affair right. with a, with her airline instructor. And that's why they revoked his security clearance. And, and that was because the they thought it would be like psychologically traumatizing to him and it would affect his work. That is absolutely ridiculous. If you know the case, because he was friends with John Lear. I mean, he knew John Lear. He had met John Lear and was a, a friend of his. Um, he had gone there um, if you read the story, so there's two people that are left out of the story in, 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 in Jeremy Corbell's film. And I think that it's, it's deceptive to not mention them or bring them into the story because they're two of the most central figures in the Bob Lazar story. And that's John Lear and Gene Huff. And Gene Huff co-wrote the original Bob Lazar tapes. It's, it says a film produced by, he, he helped produce it. So, so the original Bob Lazar tapes, the, the tape that started all this was produced by Gene Huff. Okay. And in a radio interview that I have saved and I put on my channel, um, Gene Huff claims that he met Bob Lazar um, because Bob Lazar was running a photo processing business at the time in Las Vegas. And that's what he he was listed as on on court documents. He listed his occupation as a photo processor. So he had the means to to fake that W-2 form and the, um, the, the ID badge. So the, those are the only two documents that Bob's produced in support of his case. A so, W-2 form and an ID badge. Yeah. So the W-2 form has his, his, his first wife's social security number on it, we found. That was really? the weirdest thing. So that was definitely faked. He didn't even put his, his own social security. He put his first wife's social security number on the damn thing. And then they changed it in, in other versions. But we have the original that he gave. And, and it has his, wife, his first wife's social security number on it, which... His, he was married to a woman named Carol Nadine Esslinger or Carol Nadine Strong. Uh, she was 10 years older than him. They married in, I think, like 78 or 79, moved to uh, law. And um, he was still married with, with her, I believe, when he moved from California to Los Alamos. But sometime in the middle of that is when he, he met this other younger girl, um, Jackie, which, which her real name is Tracy. Um, they call her Jackie, but, um, he married this, he, he started hanging out with this younger girl and he apparently married her, but he didn't get a real marriage certificate. He just like had a wedding and, and married her while well, he was still married to the other woman. And then the other woman found out and was so upset by it. She allegedly committed suicide. And then this is all documented. And then Carol Nadine Strong, we looked up her history, the woman that he was married to at the time, he would have had these background checks and security clearances. So, so the government hired him to work on the most top secret project the U.S. has ever known. Then they would have obviously looked into this part of his background and found these holes in his story. I mean, these, these, these were issues that he had. So, so the, it looks more like he was having an affair with his wife, you know, because he married two women at the same time, this younger girl, and then his older wife commits suicide. And then he ends up marrying the younger wife legally on paper a couple months later. And he, his first wife committed, su- allegedly committed suicide yeah. before he was hired to work at, at uh, site S4. Yeah, this was before. This was how, uh, 80, how early? This was 86, 1986. Okay. So this was two years before. So two years prior, two or three years prior to him coming out with this story mm-hmm. in 1989, 
right? So 1986 is when, you know, he, he, he meets this younger girl, moves to Los Alamos, and, um, and then he, he, he breaks up with, uh, you know, and breaks her heart, and she ends up committing suicide. Winds up, they, like, um, tailpipe in the garage, they found her in the car or whatever. I don't know if he's the one that found her or what the whole, the whole story is um, there, but it's certainly very, you know, peculiar and bizarre and strange. Um, and definitely a guy wouldn't have gotten a background check because his, his former wife was arrested, was, was involved with a hell's angel murder, according to some doc, some newspaper articles and stuff that we recently found from Las Vegas. So she was from Las Vegas and moved up there. And apparently she's connected with someone that worked at Fairchild Industries. And that's how Bob worked there out in California before he moved to, uh, Los Alamos. And he knew and a bunch of other guys like Jim Tagliani who worked at Tonopah test range. Um, and, and Jim Tagliani knew about S4. Who, was, who is Jim Tagliani? He was one of Bob Lazar's friends. So uh, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a, a guy that was friends with Bob Lazar and, and uh, John Lear and all them. And he knew he worked out at um, Tonopah Test Range at a, at a real place called Site 4. There's a difference. Okay. There's a real Site 4 at Tonopah Test Range. Okay. That's Area 52. Okay. So Area 51's in Nevada, up near Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And if you go like west from Area 51, you, you'll fly right over Tonopah on your way to Edwards Air Force Base. And, and that was, was called Site 4? There was a section out there called Site 4, and it was the ECCM, which is an electronic counter-countermeasures uh, radar setup. So they would build mock enemy radar systems, like Russian radar, and then they would figure out how to spoof or jam that those radar systems. Um, you, the, whether it's mm. the frequencies or or um, the signals and, and stuff, and this was like this was the origins of the, like the stealth days where they were working on. Right. I mean, the stealth program was a little bit before that, but you know, the early '80s. But they were still doing a lot of uh, stealth research and stuff out there at the time, which is also interesting because there was another site for that we found, which was at Plant Forty Two in Palmdale, which is where they made the B twenty the B two Spirit bombers. So. There's two classified sites named S4 or Site 4, in one at Tonopah, one at uh, Palmdale where they're building the B2. And then Bob comes out with this fantastic story about this place called Site 4 where they're reverse engineering alien you know, saucers and stuff. And that's the same story that, again, John Lear told the you know, a year before on George Knapp. So it's kind of interesting. You have this timeline where Bob Lazar moves to move you know he the white the wife thing he moves to los alamos he's living there and then then he meets this new girlfriend something happens at los alamos he apparently only worked he did work at los alamos so we've been able to confirm that right but he only mm -hmm. worked at los alamos for like eight months that we can tell that we can figure out and apparently he was fired from los alamos for using company equipment to work on his jet car which he was in he was already in um there was a monitor article from Los Alamos from 1982 um, on the jet car article. Um, so he was in Los Alamos with his jet car in 1982 doing doing stuff. So mm -hmm. so you, you can get the, a little bit a scope of the time period. And and if you really chase the, down the, the whole timeline, there's no room for him to have gotten the degrees. There's, there's no evidence that he got the degrees. And then him listing on the court documents that he didn't really have the degrees. He had a Pacifica University, which is like a mail order, you know, fake degree. Um, and he's that's possibly a mail order degree. They were doing that. It doesn't necessarily mean he paid for it. There's no proof he actually paid them, right? So, I mean, you could, if by some stretch of an imagination, just assume that uh, the government, you know, just tried to 
put a bunch of dirt on this guy and made up all this stuff that it's all made up by the government right so then at the end of the day if you if you just just get rid of all the circumstantial evidence about you know that the shows that the guy had just may not be who he says he is may have been involved with you know people like john lear who's you know, selling the same story on george knapp getting tons of views on it so you know here's bob lazar working for the photo processing company for gene huff and gene huff says that the first time they met john lear that bob lazar went over there to do an appraisal on john's house and they went to do an appraisal because uh gene huff ran an appraisal business and he, he was working he met that's how he met bob lazar because he was his photo guy so bob lazar would go take the go there take the pictures process the photos build and, and do the ads for the you know the paper and stuff and that he would hold a tape measure and this was when uh, supposedly before this is the guy they hired to be the senior staff physicist to work on you know to figure out how this other thing that the that our top scientists couldn't figure out how this reactor worked so we had to bring in this guy to figure this out so, but does it make sense does that make sense <laughs> But the, is it? It's true though. This guy, first of all, the first time Bob, from what I understand, the first time he met with George Knapp, and they did those interviews. Like yeah. He had he had to do a lot of convincing to get him to do that. Yeah. And then he tells the story of how he actually interviewed him, did this whole story, and before he published it, Bob like called him and said, "No, I don't want to do it." Like he had a change of heart. He didn't want to publish it. Didn't want to go live with it. And George Knapp said that he like wrestled with him over the tapes or something. Like he he describe some sort of like a, a physical altercation we had to grab it from um bob and fucking published it so <laughs> so bob like and so what is there to gain for him he hasn't made any money off this he hasn't that's Are what he, sure? he claims he's never made any money off of it that's what he so says they sold the bob lazar tapes back in the you know the back of ufo magazines and stuff for 30 bucks a pop back in the 90s and i know they sold quite a bit of them so I know that he made some, at least some money off it. Um, <clears throat> I've heard that, you know, Jeremy Corbell made, didn't make what he thought he would, but he made some decent money off the, off the film that he put out. And I've heard that he paid, you know, Bob's wife or some, some back channel, like, to, so Bob actually did get paid for that. But I, I, again, I have no evidence to confirm that, but I'm just, I'm just, I would love to, you know, do some more investigation into that and, and find out. Cause it would be real easy for someone to just order, you know, a whole bunch of stuff from Bob's business, United Nuclear, right? You know, it would be real easy for Jeremy Corbell to order, you know, $200,000 worth of uh, scientific equipment from United Nuclear, and then United Nuclear just simply not deliver the equipment. You know, there's other ways to, to wash that money, and Bob has the means and knows how. I mean, he started United Nuclear because he ran a fireworks um, sell, like show called Desert Blast, where they would basically, you know, invite a bunch of people and sell tickets to go watch you know these massive fireworks and bomb shows out in the middle of the desert where they'd blow up all kinds of stuff and that was during the days when you know it was getting harder you, know, you used to be able to order ammonium nitrate and and other stuff right in the mail you mm -hmm. know and at and they started putting a stop to that so you had to be a registered company in order to order those chemicals and mm -hmm. and, and and get them so bob lazar created united nuclear and started uh you know ordering those chemicals and selling them so he started out the whole thing selling like and and they also they have actually got kicked out of las vegas because they were you know selling all this glassware and it was you know winding up in all these meth labs all over vegas and they kicked him out of vegas and he had to move the company to michigan <laughs> so this there's, there's um there's a lot of history behind how bob's gotten the money and you know there's also this these companies where you know if he was 
doing it. You would never know that he got paid for it if, if, if he did. And I'm not sure I would do it either if I didn't, if I wasn't getting paid for it, what he's done, you know, but again, that's, that's, that's besides the point. What could he be getting paid for besides selling these tapes for 30 bucks a pop and helping Jeremy make a documentary and selling some fucking souvenirs on his United nuclear website? I mean, that's not like, it's a lot of trouble for like that. It seems like he would be trying to make a lot more money off such an endeavor like this. You know, and he hasn't done any podcast other than Joe Rogan's podcast. Well, it's interesting because like it's it's almost like why would he pick? He hasn't done any documentaries either, besides one with Jeremy Corbell. So right, why, why exactly. would he? Why would he only work with Jeremy Corbell or only work with Joe Rogan? I would imagine and, because I would imagine because he doesn't want the attention, and he's got people like Joe who are fascinated by the topic, and he's got people like Jeremy who are also fascinated by the topic, who are pushing this guy to do this. Like, come on, do this. And he's like, no, I don't want anything to do with it. You could tell when he went on Joe's podcast, he was like very hesitant. He had a fucking headache, whatever. And he it's not like he was happy to be there. Hey, happy to be here, Joe. Let's talk about fucking aliens. He, he was, he seemed like he didn't want to be there. It also seemed like Jeremy was his like handler throughout yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Because he didn't, and then he got the migraine. It was a lot of questions he couldn't answer. And, and why isn't like, he doing more press? It just seems like he's, he, he, he's, he knows the story's a lie and he doesn't want to do more press because he just knows that it's going to get found out. If the more, the more time he spends on there, all he needs to do is get on a show with a guy like me instead of a, someone who doesn't know anything about the case. As long as he's talking to people who don't know anything about the case or people who want to believe in the case and support the case without question, like Jeremy Corbell, you know, convinced that it's real and, you know, that guys like me are, are part of this, you know, big organization to like shut down the truth. And it's like, well, what's the truth, man? What physics do you have, bro? I, I've interviewed, you know, real senior staff physicists. So I can show you what a real senior staff physicist looks like and compare that to Bob Lazar and I, and I can show you what real physics programs and real SAPs and the, and the sort of research and what it looks like. Cause we've, I've studied these things and I've, you know, interviewed the people who worked on them. We've, we've had them on my podcast. So, um, I, I, I tend to question guys like Bob Lazar and, and especially that's, that's one of the main things is the education, the fact that he'd lie about being a physicist and, and having these credentials and then not being able to back it up is the biggest thing to me that, and I don't, you when know, he, when he's on these shows and on the, like these tapes and these interviews, is there any, any red flags in his language about physics? Yeah. That well, throws you I'm off? sure if any physicist who's listened to Bob Lazar talk knows that this guy is not like a real physicist. He's not, you know, he's not doing, you know, real equation. It, it's some of the most basic, you know, physics stuff. And then he'll throw in a bunch of other stuff like the gravity A wave and B wave idea. Um, I've had some people on the podcast that have tried to analyze that in different, you know, ways. Um, but again, it's, it, there's no, there's no core physics there. And, and when you talk about anti-gravity, right. First off, you can't have anti-gravity without negative mass. You need to have negative mass. If you're not producing negative mass, then you're not producing anti-gravity. And what, he has is the most massive element you have. So he's not producing negative mass. He's producing, you know, super mass. So it's, it's the opposite direction. It's kind of like so, a misdirection in, in, in all, all fronts. I feel like it's, I feel like it's intentional disinformation. Like it, that was put out. It's almost like, why was, you know, John Lear telling the story and then Bob Lazar suddenly get, you know, meets John Lear and then gets, uh, you know, hired to go work out there you know, despite that he knows John Lear. And then as soon as he gets working out there, what does he do? He turns and goes, I'm 
<laughs> blabs to his friends and brings them up on the mountain, you know, with uh, up to the peak, you know, because that's mm -hmm. what they did. Apparently, they brought him up to the peak, and that's when you know he got the calls and 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 uh, they they revoked his clearance and stopped. But apparently, he up at the peak, what they were filming was either Janet flights, the incoming you know flight airline flights coming into the base. Or they were filming some, you know, some of the early Star Wars SDI program uh, tests on these plasma and laser-induced plasma technologies, and, and you know, they have proton beams and other types of um, beams that they could generate uh, balls of plasma in the mm -hmm. sky. Right. <clears throat> I want to get into that. I want to talk a little bit more about this first. One of the things that um, I noticed, one of the links you sent me, was a Medium article about one of the guys who ran security clearance for Bob at what, what was it supposed to be area 51 or S4 mm -hmm. apparently what was the guy's name again right so Jeremy Corbell put this whole thing out about this Mike Figpen guy he talked Mike about Figpen. him on he talked about him on the Joe Rogan podcast and and touted him as this ultimate whistleblower uh proof that you know Bob Lazar really worked out at this place and got the security clearance but honestly when you do the security background check on Bob, he doesn't check out. None of that stuff's mentioned in any of this. No proof is given. No video. He, he didn't record the interview that he did with this guy. He didn't, you know, record audio. He didn't think, you know, he records himself in his, in, in his apartment, you know, sitting there with no shoes on for hours in the, in, in his film, but he, he couldn't, you know, just talking to George Knapp on the phone or Bob Lazar, but he can't, he couldn't have recorded that one conversation. That's way more important than any of those. So who wrote this article? This is on Medium. The title is Bob Lazar, Mike Thigpen, and the Clearance Investigation. This guy is uh, Signals Intelligence, and I'm not actually sure what his real name is. Um, it almost sounds like this guy, Victor, that I know, uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure if it's him. So I want to figure out, th there's a clip in here. Um, go Scroll down. There's a... a excerpt from an interview with Mike Thigpen. Who does it say conducted this interview with Mike Thigpen? Is this the guy who wrote the article? Yeah. So the guy who wrote the article actually, you know, reached out to these people and found a lot of these people. So this, there's a lot of people that have been doing, you know, back their own background investigations yeah. on Bob Lazar. So they went out and actually found people who worked with him at Los Alamos and people that worked with him, uh, you know, for all these things and, and interviewed him and asked him everything they knew about the guy, you know, mm -hmm. just to try to get a whole big picture of it. So this guy, I'm going to read a little part of this article. It says, I spoke with Mike Thigpen in August of 2021 to confirm Corbell's account of their conversations. When I asked if he had any recollection of Mr. Lazar or conducting a background investigation into him, Mike Thigpen said, it's possible I don't remember him. No, I only got knowledge of him where I recall it after he got into the news. I did stop and pause and listen when they threw my name into his story. The author asks, you didn't remember Mr. Lazar? As far as you were aware, did you not conduct a background or clearance investigation on him? Thigpen, as far as I recall, I did so many of them. I, If I did his background, I'm not saying I did it all, but if I did, I don't recall. The author says, did you not tell Mr. Corbell that you remembered Bob? Thickpin says, personally, no, I don't know Bob. I don't recall meeting him. If I told him I did, it was an error. I certainly didn't mean to say or imply that to Mr. Corbell. Yeah. It should be noted that Mr. Thickpin readily agreed to allow this publication of this interview. Gene Huff, mm -hmm. okay. Well, now, yeah. now play that little YouTube clip real quick where they're talking about Mike Thigpen. This is the guy, just to give people context, 
this is who um this is in i think joe rogan's interview with yeah the only one he did with bob uh, I think. so mike Vigpin was the guy that did the security clearances to go to the bait one of the guys that was and this used. is a guy that you worked with he said he did right and and george knapp you know, George didn't believe him. George put him through four polygraph tests, right? He tried to see, man, this is a big risk. It sounds interesting, but let's see if he's telling the truth. One of the things was Bob said there was a guy named Mike Thigpen. He did security clearances for the base. And that's a weird name. It's a very specific. For 30 years, George found this guy in this weird department that he didn't even know. It was Mike Thigpen. The guy wouldn't talk to me, ghosted him, totally ghosted him for 30 years, used Facebook and Google image match through his children. I was able to find him after 30 years. And I talked to him three times on the phone. He lives on the East Coast. He almost went on camera with me, confirmed that he did security clearances for the base in 1989, confirmed he remembers Bob Lazar. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that there's no evidence provided for that. And there's other guys that talked to him that mm -hmm. didn't get that story. And again, I've done my own in background investigation on him, and I just don't think he's the kind of guy that would work out at, at a place like this. So let, let's let's compare him with someone that that did. Um, look up Doctor Bernard Hache, H A I S C H. Okay, here's one more thing as well. One of the biggest um, things that I believe that have been confirmed was Bob describes that hand scanner that to get into the base, he had to put his hand on this machine that measured like the length of the finger, the yeah, biometrics of the bones, the yeah. bones and the fingers. Yeah. And that turned out to be legit. Well, we'll get into that in a second, but uh, yeah, so the hand scanners thing, we found that apparently it was in Jeremy Corbell's favorite film, which is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which came out a decade before Bob Lazar's story. So um, there's, again, any anything that was classif claimed classified that was from Bob Lazar's story, every single thing that he says was classified, we found we found in sources, unclassified public sources before that. I can I can name every single piece of classified intel that he's ever spoken about. I can cite that in in sources that predate his disclosure. So he's not a whistleblower of anything. All this stuff was in public domain. It was all unclassified out there. For anyone to find and put this put these pieces together i mean mm -hmm. the story about the the scientists who cut in the reactor and, and supposedly died you know there was a movie that came right, out okay a movie that came out that same year called fat man and little boy go look it up and in the movie it tells the story of the los alamos scientists uh the guy's name is lewis sloten s-l-o-t-i-n and he's the scientist that cut into a reactor during the Manhattan Project. Well, he didn't cut into a They had a beryllium half shell and they were doing, they had a, the demon core inside of it, which is a plutonium core that they used in the, in the atomic bomb, the first Trinity test. And they had a beryllium half shell. Now, beryllium is a, is a neutron uh, reflector. So what that does is all these neutrons that are given off, it reflects those. So when they put this half shell over it, it reflects all those neutrons around. And what neutrons are is it's a big, heavy particle that has no charge. So if you want to smash atoms apart, you know, you don't use a proton because a proton can't, it is positively charged. It can't get anywhere near the nucleus because they, they repel each other because of the charge. But neutrons have no charge. So you get a bunch of these fast-moving neutrons uh, rolling around inside this chamber, and suddenly they start smashing atoms up and releasing more neutrons and more neutrons, and it's a chain reaction. And they created the first one um, with they were they were trying to measure the criticality with this half shell experiment, and they killed three they killed two scientists. 
And um, that's a real story. That's the only, that's a, it's a story where, you know, it seems to match pretty closely with his descriptions of the, the reactor core. They look a lot like this demon core in the, in the half shell that they were using. And in fact, the experiment they were using, he was using a screwdriver and the screwdriver slipped and it fell and it went super critical because the screw, the screwdriver was holding that gap up. And when that gap fell, it went super critical. And, um, he quickly grabbed the thing and pulled it off, burnt the crap out of his hand and, and totally irradiated himself. But he saved the lives of the other nine scientists in the room and um but sacrificed himself and uh for that he was like given all these awards and stuff but he died a couple days later of radiation poisoning it was brutal man the pictures and stuff but that's a real story about uh, what is this guy's name again lewis sloten lewis sloten s-l-o-t-i-n yeah that's the dude that's find the, the oh look at the pictures of that thing that's the demon core right there so they they, they built a new uh reactor to run this experiment and it has a, a mechanical um, holder for the half shell that, that, that's on top. So it's lowered and, and raised mechanically so they can do it from a separate room, a safe distance away, you know, so, so that they, so then they can run this experiment with precision and it's not, doesn't have that element of human mm -hmm. error with the screwdriver. And the, the new um, reactor uh, core design looks a lot like Bob Lazar's element 115 reactor. It looks almost just like it actually. It, it's, it's like if you were just to modify a couple things on the, um, the new um what is it it'll be called a beryllium half shell criticality experiment that's a tongue twister yeah yeah i know beryllium half shell criticality yeah there's the scientists that were in the room that he saved um and they're distant they had he had okay. them draw their distance on the ground so is shock. this supposed to be what he was describing when he was describing the reactor inside of the flying saucer well I think he took pieces of what he learned from... So he said it was like a basketball. He said it was like this a basketball. Is, that... This is on display at the Los Alamos History Museum, Natural History Museum. So there's, like, there's exhibits on all this stuff that he, he would have seen if he was spent time in Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. So he would have, you know, he could have adapted this stuff to make up a story, you know, is all I'm saying is that's what it sounds like to me because there's no verifiable intel that's come out of anywhere in the past 30 years on, you know programs that were working on this kind of stuff or, or even interested in, in this kind of stuff the scientists that were working on it were um you know a couple a couple of these german guys that were working with and uh, on cern you know react uh particle accelerators at cern they were continuing uh glenn seaborg's work mm -hmm. glenn seaborg was again the guy who predicted this the island stability he discovered a huge number of the elements on the periodic table at Berkeley Labs at the Berkeley Accelerator. So he pioneered a lot of, um, you know, physical chemistry research in, their, in those early days. Um, but going back quickly to that hand scanner. Yeah, the hand scanner. So... So that was in it, Close Encounters. It was in electronics magazines. We found it. We found numerous pre-1989 sources for that hand scanner that, you know, would have, you know, anyone could have known about those. So, but, but he said specifically that that's what he used to get into Area 51. Yeah, every they time used he it the there. opening sequence of, of Close Encounters. Go right, watch the opening it, sequence of Close Encounters. When the guy goes into the, the top secret facility, there's the same hand scanner right there. And and Jeremy Corbell said in interviews that his favorite movie is Close Encounters. But how, so would, how could he have missed it? How would Bob know that that was specifically in the fucking in Area Fifty One though? Because it's in Close Encounters. They oh they're filming in Area Fifty One is what you're saying no. in Close Encounters. 
they're filming a top secret facility that the, the alien stuff's going on and they have to get into right in the opening sequence of the movie. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that that's the exact machine they use. It's in the, the exact actual... machine. It's that exact machine in the I, picture. I go understand watch, go open the it movie. is yeah. the exact machine, but how would Bob know that that is in fact what they have at Area 51? Uh, Just because it was in a movie doesn't Do they mean... have it in Area 51? I mean, it, it was one of the high-techs. Yes, one there, of the... Was, there was proof. There was a photo taken. One of the security guards had a, provided a photo of one of these things at Area 51. Maybe you can find it. Maybe that's the photo there. There's... Other sources that he could have learned about it from, though, it doesn't mean that can you he find, learned about it at Area 51. Can you find 51. a photo, like proof of hand scanner at Area 51? Maybe we can find that. Again, um, another thing about the, the security at Area 51, right? So Bob's security badge that he, you, that he put, it, it says MJ-12 on it, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the security badge that he used to get into work. Now, it should have said Wackenhut on it because Wackenhut does the, do the security for uh, Area 51. And if you see other Area 51 ID badges, they're uh -huh. actually issued by Wackenhut and they don't have, they don't look anything like Bob Lazar's uh, ID badge. So he got that wrong. And then I mentioned that the only other piece of documentation he's, he's provided is that W 2 form, which had his first wife's social security number on it. Mm -hmm. So can you make any sort of argument okay. that he is telling the truth? I tried this one, right? So, so let's just say this hypothesis has come up a few times, right? So let's say that, you know, Bob Lazar meets John Lear, starts learning about all this UFO stuff, you know, seeing the popularity that John Lear is getting, and and that they they're watching John Lear because they they obviously they knew John Lear was the only one talking about. He was talking vocally about Area Fifty One back when no one else was. He had pictures of like uh, a captured Russian MIG that we were, you know basically running tests on at Area 51. Uh, he had a picture of it on the tarmac that he went out there and took before they had the security at the base even set up. And, um, you know, he's like one of the one of the one those original guys. So Bob, Bob Lazar meets John Lear. And then um, maybe, you know, he was recruited and maybe they said, you know, we're, we're going to plant a, a seat. We're going to plant a disinfo pill on John Lear. And we're going to, we're going to pretend to hire Bob Lazar and we're going to bring him out to a hangar that we're going to set up. And we're going to bring a bunch of, a, a, you know, AZ-9 Avro cars, um, I mean, VZ-9 Avro cars, and some of the old Alfred C. Loading. What? Okay, so Alfred C. Loading. Look up Alfred C-L-O-E-D-D-I-N-G. This guy designed tons of flying saucers for the military between the 1940s and 1950s at, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He was an engineer. Um, that built and designed tons of f flying saucer, saucer shape and, and, and other weird shaped aircraft. L-O-E-D-D-I-N-G. How did you find this guy? That's the dude right there on the left. Yeah. So you can look up a number of his patents and a number of these crafts. Is that uh, is that a picture of the craft that he designed right there on the on the far left? Yeah, that's one of them. He, I, I mean, there's tons of them. There's over a hundred different models wow. that, that I, I I believe he designed and flew over the years. Maybe not a hundred. I don't know the exact number, but and those are the blueprints of those things. There's a whole secret chapter of classified aviation, you know, airframe design experimentation that went on back in the 40s and 50s that, mm -hmm. that the U.S. Air Force was experimenting with that, you know, nobody knows about. So some of these relics might still be around today, some of these craft. Imagine they got a bunch of these in a, in a hangar, you know, put, put, you know, locks on the doors and then bring Bob in there and tell them that they're working on alien technology in the place. You know, dress up a couple midgets or some kids with some, you know, in dummy suits and stuff and, and then... 
But then he he says he actually worked on that sport model craft, and it yeah, was, it and was, he was, it was inside all, of it. There was no seams. So there's another couple of things that we did. So from his descriptions of all that, right, mm-hmm. and his 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 descriptions, um, Michael Schratt is is a researcher I work with. Um, it's Michael S S C H R A T T, and what he does is he takes UFO case reports, and he's he's actually he works uh, for an aerospace company as a um, graphic designer. So he does 3D models of planes. So he'll take UFO reports and then he'll build a 3D model of the of the of the actual craft based on the sighting. And he has a whole archive of all these. Yeah, that's like a big chart of all the uh all the ones he's he's produced over the years. So he takes all these UFO reports and he draws scale model diagrams, very precise based on the descriptions of, of all these craft that that you know are described. So he takes the Lazar saucer and takes some of the you know descriptions of, that Bob gave of how tall he was when he went under it and you mm-hmm. know tries to match up those dimensions to see how figure out how big this thing is. And when he did that with the Bob Lazar sport model saucer, he found all kinds of like problems with the dimensions that he wouldn't have been able to stand under it in in those places that he said he did. Um, if it was the size that you know he described, hmm. and the interesting thing about that saucer, that sport model uh, flying saucer that Bob Lazar talked about, is that it looks a lot like Georgia Damsky's craft, uh, or um, the Billy Meyer craft, or um, even before that. So Billy Meyer and, and um, Billy Meyer was like the '70s, and the Billy Meyer UFO. He was faking all these UFO photos, got caught, and um, they looked just like Bob Lazar's, you know sport model saucer but but there's an earlier case uh from the 50s called otis Carr. um if you look up xtc01 otis Carr, and you'll find this fit this guy he was he was trying to he was a ufo hoaxer trying to sell um ufos back in the 50s uh o-t-i-s-c-a-r-r See how it doesn't, like, you will not find it unless you know right. what you're looking okay, for. Okay, here we go. Look at this. Look at those diagrams down there. Yeah, that, that one right there. So look at the saucer that he built in the 1950s and got a bunch of money to try to build an anti-gravity company based on an inertial, you know, gyroscopes. Um, and he built ended up building an amusement park out of all the stuff. Yeah, click on that video. And there's a bunch of patents on, on these, these UFOs. Open that on YouTube. Click on that link. Yeah, people have seen these these saucer patents get passed around every once in a while people talk about them and, and it's this this old you know yeah or even levitation how long is this uh, no. these principles as gravitational inertial lift is this billy carson or gravifugal force effect no it's not oh, billy no, it almost sounds like <laughs> you know billy yeah i've seen him on your show yeah. i've heard him before circular foil craft there it is yeah that's that. the, it looks just like the sports model and that's from that so like this all this ufo lore that you can trace back like all this stuff to um and and it kind of looks like bob lazar you know could have borrowed a lot of this stuff but it's also possible that maybe you know a counterintelligence group took all this and, and put it together you know like you got guys like richard doty you know the, i don't know if you know who that is uh Doty's this guy who worked for u.s air force uh osi which is the office of special investigations and his job was to feed you know people disinformation to, to try to throw them off the case if they got too close to you know top secret programs and there was this guy named paul benowitz there's a whole movie on this called mirage men mm-hmm. and um this guy paul benowitz you know the, he he convinced paul benowitz that you know he wasn't seeing top secret craft going in and out of uh 
you know, the Air Force Base where he lived next to, he, he convinced them that it was he was seeing aliens, and they even beamed you know fake messages through his audio, you know, his his receiver and radio equipment to make him think that he was being you know contacted and and you know seeing aliens and the guy went crazy you know they tried to tell him that you know hey look I, I none of this was real i had to do this you know Doty tried to tell him that it wasn't real and he didn't believe Doty. he wanted he, he couldn't he, he was just got too deep down the rabbit hole and he ended up committing suicide um that's the paul benowitz story and uh but it goes to show you the lengths that the u.s air force will go to to keep their classified programs a secret and it's interesting that mentioned the two site fours that were classified programs that, you know, were other facilities. And then they talk about this place called site four in Papoose Lake, where we've never found evidence of anything. There's had, no evidence that there's. So we had a guy, uh, this guy, Gabe Zeifman, he actually flew over the base in like Christmas time. Uh, it's shut, it, like they, they, they shut down the, the air, the no fly zone. So you can actually fly like real close. To, through that area so he got real close with a with a super um you know telescopic lens and a, and a real high def you know mm -hmm. 4k camera and we got the highest detailed pictures of papoose lake ever and uh george knapp put this interview out he showed it but then once he realized that it disconfirmed the story and didn't confirm it he quietly like pulled the story back and it disappeared and it's like that with everything george and george like he'll report on all this stuff that debunks bob but then he'll hide it and, or pull it back and it just disappears in the background and but later on if some debunker confronts him he can say oh i already reported on that and we already covered that you know like and it's kind of <laughs> it's just kind of deceptive I, I i think that you know he he's never he's done some of the best debunkings on bob lazar because he's had to confront all this like contrary evidence to the case but all of it's buried has he ever debated anyone like you about no they this? don't do debates then they would never they would never huh. he corbell did one debate okay he did a debate on bob lazar with stanton friedman all right it's out there and stanton friedman just mopped the floor with him um who is stanton friedman so stanton friedman was a a nuclear a submarine uh, guy who who got really big into ufos um after seeing one you know, for the, I, I believe, I, I don't know if he saw one, but he got super into UFOs and was one of the best, you know, science researchers out there, do, you know, doing early scientific work in, in, you know, trying to understand flying saucers and stuff. But, you know, he wasn't really a, a, a he says he's a nuclear physicist, but he, he was actually like um, an, a nuclear engineer or something. I don't think he, he wasn't like super good at physics. He wasn't like as good as some of the other, other scientists I've met or mm -hmm. talked to. So he's an interesting guy, but you know, he, he got pretty far, um, but he didn't, you know, it's unfortunate. He, he wasn't alive for the last, he, he died very, uh, he died, I think a couple of years back, maybe 2012 or something. What was the, what part of that debate stood out to you the most? Uh, the one thing that stood out the most was when um, Corbell's response, you know, to when Stanton cornered him on the whole issue of him lying about his education, okay. uh, Corbell's response was, oh, come on, you've never lied to get a girl. You know, oh, really? or that he lied. He basically he lied to get the job, or lied mm -hmm. to get the job. You know, he lied on his resume to get the job, and you know. Hmm. So I don't know. It it's kind of hard to lie on your resume with a senior. You know, because you have to. If you're a senior staff physicist, as I mentioned, uh, well, I didn't mention that. Let's let's bring up Bernard Hache again because I wanted to get into that. Um, Bernard Hache has what's called a CV or curriculum vitae, and that's what any 
you know, published scientist is going to have uh, a bunch of work that they've worked on. Now, this guy was a senior staff physicist. He worked at Lockheed Martin Advanced Aerospace Concepts Department from 1979 to 1999. Talk more directly into that thing. Yeah, so 19 to 1999. And he worked on a bunch of classified physics programs as a senior staff you know, a real resume would look like for someone who would, they'd recruit and hire to these types of programs. Mm -hmm. Bob Lazar does not have a CV. He claims to have a, um, a master's degree from MIT. And he claims that his thesis was in MHD or magnetohydrodynamics, which is a form of propulsion where, you know, it's like that when you ionize air and make it plasma and then use magnets to, to move that plasma. That's magnetohydrodynamics. Okay. So um, you can use it for propulsion and, you know, which is why he claimed that's what his degree was in, that that would give him credibility to have, you know, actually done the thing that he did or get the position out there, even though element 115 and the, the, the high-end, you know, nuclear physics is really a separate issue from magnetohydrodynamics. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a completely different fields, but, um, I don't know. It, you look at guys like this and you compare him to Bob Lazar and I'm like, well, you know, why would they hire Bob Lazar? You know, why would they need Bob Lazar when they have dudes like this working on this stuff? You know? Now, what did Bob Lazar say specifically about MIT? What did he say his level of education was at MIT? A master's degree. He said he had a master's degree. And at he MIT. said he graduated in 1982. Okay. Okay. Which was the same year that according to the Los Alamos Monitor article, he moved to Los Alamos from California. So if he was in Los Alamos, did he move to Los Alamos and then Los Alamos sent him to MIT? Because that's kind of like what what he changed the story up. Yeah, that's how he that's how he filled in like the holes in the timeline, saying that you know oh Los Alamos mm. sent him to this you know program to do a a speedy master's degree in MHD, which apparently never wrote a thesis paper for because there's no record of his thesis paper. That's what he says the government scrubbed, right? They tried to scrub everything out of his life. Like how could you how could you scrub that? It's it's published in journals and, and then other other you know, there's other scientists in that field who read every paper. If in if like if I'm in magnetohydrodynamics, if a new paper comes out on MHD, I'm reading it. And I'm be like, oh, who's Robert Lazar? And you remember these things. So nobody's ever heard of him in the field. Mm -hmm. There's no record of his thesis, you know, anywhere. He didn't keep a copy of it. You know, there's none of that. So so there's there's lots of things like that that are hard to say. Like, well, he says the government deleted all the records. How could they delete, you know, every yearbook issued to every student who graduated in 1982? So there's no yearbook or anything like this. There's, there's absolutely zero proof he was ever at MIT. Yeah, that's all it would take is a yearbook picture, you know, um, not a class shred. listing. There's no proof, you know, and that's why Eric Weinstein recently, you know, I think he's starting to catch on because he challenged Bob Lazar to a debate. He said, well, Joe Rogan asked me if I'd debate Bob Lazar and he hadn't really looked into the story at the time, but I guess now he has and he's, you know, wants to, you know, get into the M MIT and phys what, what physics, you know, who, what physicists do you know? You know, because he was asked one time in 1993 in Rachel, Nevada, it was the last Q&A session that Bob Lazar ever gave publicly. And he was asked at that Q&A session by Tom Mahood, oh, you know, you claim that the government deleted your, your, your educational records. You know, could you kind of, could you try to reconstruct some of that history? Could you name, you know, some of your professors from Caltech or MIT? He said, oh, sure. You know, I, I guess, uh, you know, Dr. Duxler and Dr. Hosenfelder is what Bob says in the interview. And uh, he says that Duxler was from Caltech and Hassenfelder was from MIT. And 
couldn't find anyone in the whole registry with that name. So Stanton looked up, you know, Duxler and the whole, you know, APS, you know, has all the, all the, any, anyone who's a physics teacher or student, you know, gets in, into the American Physical Society um, or APS and you're listed under there. I'm listed under there. You can look me up. And um, he looked up Duxler and found that there was one Professor Duxler who worked at Pierce Junior College in Woodland Hills, California, which is where um, Bob Lazar lived after high school next to a uh, rocket engineer named Eugene Gluhareff, who actually built those rockets that he's on the bike, uh, the jet bike with, you know, he's got mm -hmm. the rocket bike and the rocket cars. So those are Gluhareff pressure jet engines. They're not actually rocket engines. They're extremely inefficient and extremely loud. And um, the, um, yeah, so that, that bike was built by his neighbor. He lived in Woodland Hills, California. That's where the article's from. It talks about him there. Yeah. Yeah, Eugene Gluhareff, and he was a uh, a helicopter. Uh, he worked for Sikorsky Helicopters as well, so he's an interesting guy. And um, yeah, Bob Lazar lived in Woodland Hills, California. Went to Pierce Junior College, and there's dot. And then Stanton Friedman went and looked looked it up and found records that he actually attended classes there and, and asked Doctor Duxler to you know look in his records and said, mm -hmm. yeah, he did have a student you know by the name of Bob Lazar, Robert Lazar, in one of his classes. So. Yes, it, it's it's a fact that he did go to Pierce Junior College, and uh, if you can go to MIT and go to Caltech, you don't go to Pierce Junior College. Right, but what he says you don't go to community college if you get into MIT and Caltech. Right, but I think he claimed that he was sent to MIT by who by parts of the government, whoever he was working for it at okay. to to learn more about some of this technology that he was studying. That's what he I believe that he claimed. I could be wrong there. That's possible, but then again, you know, would there be records of him being in Cambridge at some some time interval, and there'd be he'd have firsthand knowledge of things like around Cambridge, he'd have knowledge of people that he worked with or was there with, mm -hmm. you know. And then some people say, oh, I can't remember any of my teachers or any of my professors from college and this and that. I was like, you don't remember your academic advisor? Like, if you're in a you know program like this, like, this I can is... remember all my teachers from high school. Like, I ran into one yesterday, actually. <laughs> you know, you know, you're, it's the thing about him is he doesn't smell it. Like, he passes the sniff test. He doesn't appear to be. He doesn't appear to be a liar. He right. doesn't. Uh, he doesn't. If he's playing a part as a character, he's got it nailed, if man. If he is a liar, like, you know he's obvious. I mean? Yeah, like everyone if says. If I was going to cast him in the, in, in, as a role in the movie, man, he, he'd be a great uh, character for, to play the part for sure, man. He, he does a great job at that. And, and he had me fooled for a number of years, man. When I, I, used to, I used to argue in favor of Bob Lazar until I got, you know, smartened up and educated by real Area 51 and real physicists and real scientists and, you know, got deep down the rabbit hole on all this propulsion stuff, man, because... You know, if you think Bob Lazar is the the epitome of where where this is this technology and this stuff is at, you haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> so, what gives you the right to question some of this physics stuff with Bob Lazar? What What do you know about physics? I mean, I know a little bit, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I talked. So I, I I've gone and interviewed. We run a site called. Um, I. I one of the guys that got me into all this anti-gravity research was Tim Ventura back in the day with American mm -hmm. Anti-Gravity. And I teamed back up with Tim and we started this conference because I thought he, he and he's perfect for the, for the role. He's, a, he's, a, he's our moderator. And um, we wanted to bring people in and create, a, create an academic and open community where we could discuss these kinds of ideas, at UFO propulsion and, and discuss UFOs and anything goes kind of 
conference. And um, we got the idea because we attended the Estes Park Conference, which is an annual conference put on by James Woodward. Um, he's famous for the Woodward effect and uh, or the mock effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, Woodward puts on this uh, Estes Park Conference every year and gets a number of uh, really good scientists out there to talk about their ideas for um, propulsion and physics and stuff. So um, the best, the one of the, one of the best ones from that was uh, Nathan Inan. I-N-A-N, if you want to look mm. that up and get a good pri a good physics primer uh, on anti-gravity. Did you go to school one. for physics? Like, what, do, you, do you have any, like, degrees in physics? Yeah, yeah. So I went to Bridgewater State University, and um, and I got my – I graduated in 2012 with a bachelor's degree in physics. I did a minor in math because there's a lot of – because just because. And, uh, you know, I, I – so I have a background in physics. I can speak the language enough of it to – and I'm not really, like, super into all this – crazy tensor and string theory stuff. I'm, I'm not, no Ed Witten, you know, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, I'm not, but I, I know enough where I can, I can dabble in it. And I'm more of an experimentalist and, and, and um, and they, an engineer kind of guy. Mm. So I'm, I, I bridge that gap, but I, I can talk, I talk to a lot of the, I talk to those people and I can, I can mediate, you know, I can understand enough of what they're saying, even if I don't get all of it all the time. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty up on it. So Eric Weinstein was recently talking about Ed Witten and he was talking about him as if he was Gandalf of the Gandalf of physics. And uh, yeah, he I mean, says a mathematical wizard and, and just a genius. Is thing. it true that, I mean, what I think was a what smart he, people, smart person. I think what he was trying to say was that even Ed Witten is not even in striking distance of understanding or coming to any sort of conclusions on this anti-gravity. Well, it's interesting because Ed Witten went down the string theory rabbit hole, you know, in the late, late sixties and, and early seventies and stuff. And, uh, he was working, you know, there's the father and son team that Eric Weinstein points out, Lewis and, and Ed Witten, right? Mm -hmm. Lewis Witten got approached by Martin Marietta corporation and was like, oh, we're going to, we're trying to, we want you to figure out anti-gravity for us mm -hmm. and you're going to figure it out. And so they put him through. What know, year was this? This was like, I'd say the 19, uh, when did it start? Probably the 1950s. He goes over it on, um, if you want to look it up, you can look up um, an article, 70 year, seventy plus years of anti-gravity history. There's an article on thedrive.com where they actually have the video um, with Lewis Witten giving the whole story. So if people want to look that up, they can okay. they can find that that whole thing, an article on it and a video um, with some links to, to more information on it. But yeah, 70 plus years of anti-gravity history, if you just search for that. Um, but the other thing is... Um, Are people still working on anti-gravity? <laughs> I, I know I know at least 12 groups that like are right now that are 12 different groups of people that are they're trying to figure it out and doing different approaches and different methods. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people who are still working on it. And we we've there's been... 70 plus years of, of projects, you know, this is not just, th th there was all kinds of other projects. So, so they had a whole facility. The other, the other, the other team was the, the husband and wife team. That was Bryce and Cecil do it at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And um, at North Carolina, Chapel Hill, also in North Carolina, they had this guy, Andrew Bonson. So they had, um, yeah, uh, uh, Andrew Bonson. And Bonson was the guy who was funny. He, he ran a big air conditioning company. He had a lot of money from smelling air conditioning units. And he wanted to From research, smelling air conditioning units? From selling. <laughs> um, and he 
ended up, you know, funding this lab called Bonson Labs, and they hired, you know, Tom, Thomas Townsend Brown and, and a number of other guys to try to, you know, do experiments on anti-gravity back then. That was 19, you know, 54, 56 and stuff. Um, so they have this whole facility down there. I know that Bryce oh, I've seen went this down there before. before. Yeah, this is a cool article. But yeah, yeah it, 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 there's, there's more history to this in the physics. So what's interesting is that Bryce Dewitt was working a lot with a, with um, John Archibald Wheeler, who was Richard Feynman's PhD advisor um, at Princeton. And Wheeler did a lot of classified work. He worked on the H-bomb. He actually left H-bomb secrets on a train one time on accident and then got so scared he like refused to leave Princeton after he wouldn't leave uh, Princeton after that and, and stuff um but John Wheeler was a was a genius he came up with all these different um concepts and stuff and one of the, two of the interesting things that he was working on specifically with Bryce Dewitt during this period in the 1960s before physics got corrupted by string theory and sent off a cliff they were working on on uh, uh, resolutions to um the paradoxes between quantum mechanics and special and general relativity and special relativity. Like how do you merge relativity with quantum mechanics and make the two consistent? And they were struggling to how to do that. And one of the solutions that they came up with was this issue of quantum non-locality. And that's this issue that the, the substructure of space is on some higher dimensional plane that that space and time are, are actually like a, a holographic illusion and that everything exists all in one uh, hyperplane all at once and, and that we just see different things in different specs from different observer viewpoints and stuff. A lot of this was confirmed, you know, years later by like Elaine Aspect and, and um, John Bell and, uh, and others, you know, with some of their experiments. But what, what, what that core argument of the quantum non-locality, that explains right there how UFOs are getting here. Because if you can create an Einstein-Rosen bridge between these two points in the universe... Um, you can open a wormhole and then just, you know, step through. But then mm -hmm. how do you how do you do that? How do you do that is another story. And um, I got kind of got in this on Brett's channel a little bit because he was like, you know, making the, the relativity argument for why aliens can't get here that we've all, all heard. The speed of light is the speed limit. You can't go faster. Right. And that. But, speed of light would take, I think, what was he saying? It would take 100,000 years to right. get here from somewhere. But how long does it take for the photon? Because for the photon, it's instantaneous. Why Pho is that? The photon does not experience any time at all. In fact, the photon makes the trip, goes backwards, and then ne to negotiate, and then goes backwards in time, and then and then then figures out which what, which route it's going to take, according to QED, which is quantum electrodynamics, the the theory of light, as as written out by Richard Feynman, which is which is super interesting. That's like this pilot, this pilot. It was the pilot wave theory. It's one interpretation of quantum mechanics. There's two different interpretations. Um, one is this pilot wave interpretation that's Bohmian quantum mechanics, and the other one is um, Copenhagen interpretation. That's the Schrodinger's cat, where it's both alive and dead at the same time in the state of superposition before the wave function collapses, rather than it takes the trip, renegotiates, and then figures out which way it's going to go. It's kind of a different approach to the the, the quantum action, the principle of quantum action. Mm. Um, but this whole idea is that for the photon and, and light, it seems has a lot to do with all this. Cause I mentioned in order to create anti-gravity, you need negative mass. So how right. do you create negative mass? Right. Well, they've done it experimentally. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. There's, there's an experiment that they did at university of Rochester where they created negative mass in a laboratory and they did it using, uh, 
something called polariton condensate. Now, what the hell is polariton condensate? Well, it's liquid light is another word for it. It's light that's been trapped inside of a material. So when light goes in a material, it produces these these um, you know quasi particles inside the material by the, the interaction of the electromagnetic fields to the material. Those are called excitons. And when the excitons are large enough to polarize the actual you know physics inside there, the, the vacuum, you can actually create these polaritons or you know or polar this polarons and bipolarons and th these are all quasi particles that you can basically generate in materials and uh, through these generation of these quasi particles you can create systems where negative mass can be produced through these polariton condensates which is liquid light it's trapped light so it's fascinating because you see these you know ufos that like appear like glowing balls of light and then they do this warp thing you know and how are they doing that and is there any you know interest you know is there any physics behind this and well sure enough light can produce propulsion you know there's a number of you know we i, I mentioned the radiometer crook's radiometer um it's a it's a it's a meter which measures radiation or, or the um, crook's radiometer yeah i think that's what it's called mm -hmm. yeah and um this was what you showed me in the giza power plant book in Christopher Dunn's book. No, that was the Crooks tube. That's Crooks an electron tube. gun. So, so okay. yeah, that was. Remember, uh, Joe Rogan had um, Tom DeLong on the podcast, and he's talking about this, you know, metamaterial that they have that they use to warp space time, and he's saying, oh, they fire an electron at it, and it goes slower, you know, one way than the other, and um, you know, Joe Rogan was like, how do you fire an electron at it? And and Tom DeLong's like. I don't know. I'm not a physicist. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the answer is a Crooks tube. That's a an electron. Crooks tube. That's fires an electron an elect gun. It's an electron gun. Yeah. So that's, that's what you could, that's what you could have used to fire electrons, but this is a little different. So electron, th these are photons. These are light particles and light particles actually, you know, contain mass or, or they contain momentum because you can, Kate, that you can get this thing spinning just by shining light on it. And it's just black squares on one side and white on the other. So what happens on the white side is it's reflecting the light and on the black side, it's absorbing the light. Right. So it gets a, there's an in, in, imbalance in the forces from the light, um, the pressure that the light puts on there. So, oh, so wow. it actually, that's what causes the thing to, to spin or rotate. Cause you know how they get the black on one side and the white on yes. the other. So that's, that's the principal concept behind this. So light has momentum. So you can use light to push things. So if you get enough light, you can push heavy thing. I mean, this is really light, perfectly balanced thing. In a, and, you know, you're using a small amount of light, but it can still push it. But what happens when you get a ton of light and you bounce it around inside this resonant cavity, you know, in this metamaterial that you've created that is made to capture and trap light, it's essentially a, a, a piece of glass or a dielectric between two mirrors. So that the mirrors just bounce the light back and forth between the glass you know, in the middle. So the light, light goes in and they're one way mirrors. So you can, the light goes in and then it gets trapped and you can bounce it around and then you can do different things to that light. You can squeeze it and then you can set up other, um, you know, Zenic surface waves and other, other types of waves in, in the uh, structure to produce these different types of condensates. So, uh, con condensates are condensed matter physics. So it's not like condensed milk where I'm, you know, evaporating all the water out. It, it's, it's, where I'm cooling all the quantum particles so that the statistics that govern them all fall to the same level so that they start behaving, you know, their quantum mechanical behaviors start emer becoming more emergent. So you're creating, you know, macroscopic objects that are uh, exhibiting quantum mechanical behaviors. That's how, you know, you can 
there might be a window into how to, you know, change physics altogether. And if they're not working on this, then they should be. And um, I don't think they would have figured this out in the 1950s. I don't think they had the math or the material science back in the 50s. Assuming that we captured actual pieces of, you know, UFOs or extraterrestrial technology, we might have, you know, had some of this and maybe back engineered or learned something from studying those pieces. But as far as, you know, us being able to build them and manufacturing them, I don't think we're at that level yet. I think that that's where the, the problem is right now in, in, the, um, in the whole industry of being able to do this. You know, that's why I'm not worried about talking about this kind of stuff. I don't think, you know, Russia and China, it would need a, you need a, a very large state apparatus to be able to fund a program and, and research something like this. What you know? do you think these modern day UFOs are then? What do you think, do you think they are from somewhere else or do you think they are something we found and figured it out or do you there's, think there's, I, I like to evaluate every UFO case on an individual basis because it's just there. It's all different things. There's so many, there's such, there's so, there's there's such so a many wide, technologies mm -hmm. that people have no idea about that. I'm like, Oh God, now I watched this one. It was a video and I'm like, look at this thing. It's transmedium. It's coming out of the water and then it's flying around and then it goes back into the water. And I'm like, dude, that's a blurred down uh, version of the MPUAV cormorant. Go look it up. It's a, they decommissioned a bunch of nuclear subs and they, you know, Lockheed Martin did this uh, and they started, you know, figuring out what they could do with the launch systems for the nukes and the, and the subs. And they, they built this craft called the cormorant, which gets shot out of the friggin' water and can fly and then return to the water and get, you know, re reconnect with the submarine. Mm. And um, that's what they showed the video of. And, and it's like, well, you know, if you, if you didn't know any better, you'd think it was aliens or a UFO or something. But, but then there's other cases where, you, you know, you have, um, that are more intriguing, you know, where there's actual debris and contact and, and, and other things, you know, let's start, maybe we should start with Roswell. Yeah. Roswell is a perfect example. You have all these rural farmers, you have, you know, Mac Brazel, the farmer, you know, finds this material, brings it into the bar, brings it to, you know, to town, shows a bunch of people this Apparently brought it down to Roswell Army Air Base and 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 uh, someone some other people found it and were showing a bunch of pieces to the fire station. So lots of people handled this material and they described it as this memory foil, right? Um, which is a it, it would you could crumple it up in a ball and then let it go and it would go back to its original shape. And um, memory metals are super interesting, like um, shape shape retention alloys. So um, nitinol is the, the first one that we created, and it was not created until 1954 at Naval Ordnance Research Labs. Night, so, it's called nitinol? Yeah, nitinol. It stands for nickel, titanium, N-I-T-I-N-O-L, Naval Ordnance Research Labs. Oh, wow. So it was discovered at Naval Ordnance Research Labs back in the 50s, but there's evidence that they were working on this or looking into titanium alloys at Battelle at Wright-Patterson as early as 1949. Because um, Wright-Patterson, 1947, Roswell happens. All the debris ends up at Wright-Patterson, allegedly, right? That's that's where NASIC is. That's where the U.S. Air Force uh, mm -hmm. Aerospace Intelligence Center is. That's where U.S. Air Force Institute of Technology. This is the hub. This is the real, like, it's three, four times the size of Area 51. And um, they have way more intelligence people and way more stuff. Area 51, if anything, is just a test ground. If there's any kind of real you know, nuts and bolts, you know, physics and science research, it's going on there at Wright-Patterson and, and mm. Battelle. Um, Battelle would have been a perfect choice if you had alien technology and had to come up with a contractor to who to look at it. Um, they were doing, 
you know, tank armor metals research, and they were ex had all the experts in metallurgy that they needed at the time, and they were also a um, a private institution. So they're not actually a government organization. They're a private institution, so they don't have to follow the same Battelle, form. B-A-T-E-L? Yeah, B-A-T-T-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. It's Battelle Memorial Institute, and it was set up... Um, you know, in the early 20s, I believe, late, maybe late 20s. Um, and it's it's been around, you know, almost 100 years now. They currently manage all of our national labs. Did you know that? No. Yeah, Los Alamos Labs, uh, Oak Ridge, you know, every, everywhere is managed by Battelle under contract. And, and uh, that's kind of scary for science because if you want to control technology and you want to, you know, have a ufo cover up of of this kind of scale you need that what do you think happened at roswell what do you think that was that crashed there uh it's interesting i think that a number of people were brought out there scientists um to look at this that have testified to it and talked about it um robert sarbacher claims that he was you know brought a, a part of it um interesting guy he did a lot of work on polaritons and exciton physics uh coincidentally um in his years um of research and also a guy named um john von neumann was a, one yes. of the smartest guys at the on the manhattan project mm -hmm. he came up with the idea of modern neumann probes just four months after roswell so you know maybe he heard about the idea that it was a crashed alien spacecraft and he just came up with that idea from his imagination or maybe it was a von neumann probe that crashed i don't, I don't know what's a von neumann probe that's a self-replicating space program it, it's a like a type three uh, robot that can go out make copies of itself and call and, and, and then colonize and, and, and share and send back information. So that's like, what it's a, it's like a droid that comes here and, and sets itself up like a monolith or something and just records information and, <laughs> and studies us, you know, and it'd probably go on scene, plug into our internet once we created one, you know, stuff like that. I, it, there's, there's a whole bunch of theories on them. Another one is called Bracewell probes. Uh, that's another variation of this uh, that are slightly different. Von Neumann is responsible for like the first computer, right? The first supercomputer that was ever, and it was like a like a no. eight ton computer or something. No, that's Turing. No, I think I thought that it was, was Turing. Von Neumann. No. Um, this was uh, Von Neumann was the human computer. He was called the human computer because he could do cal like very complex, you know, large calculations in his brain. Mm -hmm. um, and he did a lot of the, you know, work for the Manhattan Project on that. But I don't know if he did any direct work on computers. He was more of like the theoretical and computational physicist for, for Los Alamos. But yeah, that, that, that I believe was Turing and Babbage were some of the first computer guys that, that you know, but I don't know, supercomputer was Gray. Gray, I think, created the first supercomputer really in the 70s. Huh. Maniac. Maniac was the name of the computer. An army-funded electronic... Uh, it was an army-funded electronic numerical integrator. Um, the first computer in the world and was the first computer. It was 100 feet long, 10 feet high, and it had a 17,000... Uh, it had 17,000 vacuum cubes and it weighed 60,000 pounds. <sighs> Look up the yeah the maniac computer. Oh okay yeah so he did some of this computer work too. I didn't yeah. know I didn't know about his computer. Yeah, work. Annie Jacobson talks all about this in uh, her book, The Pentagon Brain. Yeah, and um, you know this is kind of like this sort it's of a research vacuum tube computer, right? And this was all like this computer was used to calculate the exact amount of 
uh, feet in the air, they needed to detonate the bombs over Japan to, to create the most civilian casualties. Yeah. Like they literally figured out the exact altitude to de detonate those bombs. Yep. Probably just set in like two integrals and set them equal and found the intersection point and they had to do it with computers. It's probably mm -hmm. very complex. This is dark so. shit, man. Some of the stuff that Von Neumann and Herb York were working on in the beginning of DARPA or it was called ARPA in the beginning. Yeah. ARPA. ARPANET was the original internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I didn't know about this, man. So like, the, yeah, it, it just shows that they knew it was computers. And they knew they needed to figure out computers and integrated circuits and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, th that's the thing. Like guys like the day after Roswell with Corso, he says that, oh, all our integrated computer chips and all this stuff came right from Roswell and stuff. And it shows that they were they were working on this stuff. This stuff's existed before Roswell, man. I mean, they had vacuum tubes. They, they were working on the transistor. You know, even though it was invented after Roswell, I don't think it came from Roswell because the guys who were working on it, like, had all the solid state theory behind it. And they, mm -hmm. it, it, all the physics was there. It didn't, like, come from nowhere. And it can all be traceable to human scientists and human sources. And that's another thing I don't like in all this because a lot of times the aliens get the credit for all these discoveries of this stuff. And it's like, no, you're missing all the history and the, and the real science and the, and the people who worked on this. And there's people that spent their lives to get, the science of this to this point and, and you're going to give you're going to credit aliens for everything it's like the same thing. so did you tell me i don't remember if you actually said what do you think was it what do you think it was that crashed at roswell oh i don't know what it crashed at roswell but i don't think it was a theory? Um, project mogul i don't think it was project mogul weather balloon uh train right you know, the alvarez you know explanation and, right that was that. a cover-up right where they had the guy take the photo but posing with that piece of like foil Saying there it was, was a weather balloon both, for the news. Go, both the guys in that photo, so Jesse Marcel and Colonel DeBeau, both testified to a material switch, and they said that that was not the material, and that they, they, they faked that photo op and they did a material switch. So both the top intelligence officers right there testified to that. Numerous people who handled the material described it in, in you mm -hmm. know this, great yeah. detail. Um, yeah, that's a piece of radar target and everything, and uh, you know weather balloon with radar target. So that's... You know, you can see the look on disappointment on Marcel's face, like almost like he's being forced to do this and he knows something more. Mm -hmm. And even Jesse Marcel's son said his, he, he stopped at the house on the way home and showed his son some of the material. Right. Said he saw it too. He said it, it looked like this crystallized stuff and, you know, this uh, in Bakelite material or something. But, it was, you know, so the materials that were described by all these witnesses who saw it was not a weather balloon. It's just hard to believe that it was mistaken by air force intelligence for a weather balloon that, you know, they, they would make this mistake and then have to fly it out to Fort Worth. Could you imagine like the air force intelligence getting into Fort Worth and being like, Oh, it's a weather balloon. You thought it was a, you thought it was an alien spaceship. Right. You know, so I just, there's certain things that don't make sense. I, I believe that if it was an alien spaceship, the government completely had the ability to cover it up. They, they still do to this day it, it the, with what I've seen that their ability to cover other things up um, I just cannot possibly believe that they couldn't cover something like that up if it were true um, there's so many people from Wright Patterson that reported you know handling this material or working on it then you have the Battelle study that was done in 1949 looking into nickel titanium alloys they developed a whole system of you know dissolving these uh, alloys of unknown origin um, using uh, Carb, uh, chlorine tetra, tetrachloride. So they dissolve it in chlorine 
and then measure the off gases of the, as they as they burn it in, in chlorine and dissolve it in chlorine and then burn it and they measure the off gases to tell what the thing was made out of mm. so why would this was a, a, a you know a Battelle document you know that written for Wright Patterson Air Force Base in 1949 and the scientists who wrote it um, Elroy John Center testified that you know he worked on he was given materials while working at Battelle he was given metals that he thought were from aliens because he didn't he didn't think we could make that kind of stuff it was impossible the, the stuff that he had worked on he told his wife this and he told other people mm. this <clears throat> so um, it's super interesting then the director of Battelle was this guy Howard Cross who it turns out was um, you know connected with with some interesting research into all this and then you know nasa doing research into the into the, these um shape retention alloys as well um the fact that they were looking into specifically nickel titanium alloys and um and trying to you know figure out this stuff that early just shows me that there there's there might be something to this they have this you know we we created the first memory metal based on this technology and then we're working on it right after this and the, and these all these witnesses are describing this foil which sounds a lot like a sophisticated memory material. Now, I've heard that it's a, like a nitinol wire, a fine you know, thread of nitinol wire that's woven in a fabric. That's actually how this, some of this stuff is made. And that's why it has the, these you know, materials that it does, that it's like woven on the atomic level. And that's why mm. they looked at it under an SEM and were like, how the hell we're we gonna make this, dude? You know, like you need a, like a micro loom or something to, to right. weave this, or you know. So um, it can just imagine that the you know the complexity of these nanomaterials when they looked at them and were like, how can we you know build this stuff and what's even going on here as far as the physics goes? Because you know you, you dive into all this polariton and exciton stuff where you're, you're you're trapping light inside these cavities and then mm -hmm. you can then you can do things with the light once you once you have it trapped and you and you can you can build integrated photonic circuits so you can build entire circuit boards of integrated electronics that function on photons instead of electrons. So they're much more efficient. You know, when you deal with electrons, you have resistivity and impedance. So, so you're, you're burning most of your energy that you're using to do your calculations on your computer and, and do everything on your computer. You, most of that energy is getting wasted as heat. But if you had it all in, in terms of light instead of electrons and electronics, if you had it with photonics and spintronics of just, you know, these microscopic, I mean, I mean nanotechnology engineered materials that would you know, can trap and redirect light through all these channels the same way that your computer does it with voltage and current and inside these integrated circuit boards, you could build, you know, very advanced computers that are, you know, and the storage capabilities that you'd have like 5D crystal storage, you know, it would just be, you know, this is, this is the world we're going towards and you can't get smaller than building atom by atom, you know? So that's, if you're talking about alien technology, that's, that's the crux. I mean, that's where you're, where eventually you need to get to is the ability to manufacture things atom by atom and what we're going to be able to do with nanotechnology once we get to that, you know, level. So this light propulsion technology, you're basically saying that in order for a, another civilization to get here, that's what they would need to use. The anti-gravity would be irrelevant. Um, well, it's anti, it's, it, it's anti-gravity is, is kind of irrelevant because it's, yeah, it's not just, you're not just repelling away from gravity. Right. And because, yeah. You have to be able to go interstellar. So you have to be able to right. open up these massive 
distances of time, space time, and create Einstein Rosen bridge between those two things. So what, I'm sorry, I gotta. This is I'm just dumb. So I gotta. I don't know what Einstein Rosen bridge is. <laughs> yeah. So this Einstein Rosen bridge. So they kind of came up with this idea of solutions to Einstein's field equations and um, a bunch of these, you know, a bunch of people come up with different metrics and different uh, solutions to them. One, one of the most popular is the Schwarzschild um, metric, which is what, what black holes do. That's how, uh, that's, right. that's like the, the, the topology and um, physics of black holes is this uh, Schwarzschild solution. Now these other, um, so the, these Einstein-Rosen solutions are, you know, wormhole solutions. So okay. they're, they're, they're solutions to the, the field equations where you can open up two point and connect two points of space over, over right, like distances. folding a piece of paper in half and poking a hole right through it. Yes. Okay. It's all about how you fold, uh, folding the paper and then how you poke the hole. So the, the, the opening and the shape of the, the hole that you poke and, um, all that is super important, um, to doing that. Um, and this bending and folding of space time, but how do you do that? So the way, way we can see it being done um, in physics is that the photons themselves are, are actually generating and building and producing the space time. So, so rather than thinking of relativity as this you know, absolute theory, think of it as a um, emergent theory that's generated or comes out of quantum mechanics. And uh, one of the guys I like, he does a lot of cool research into this as, as uh, Lewis Kaufman. He's a mathematician. He does a lot of knot theory and shows how, you know, he has this whole paper on how relativity can emerge simply from, you know, quantum mechanics and the, these simple functions. If you just do this expansion and then you separate the odd and even terms, you get relativity from that as, as these two parts. And mm. uh, it's, it's an interesting take on, on, on the whole physics of it. Uh, because it's saying that if we, you know, when you shine light, that light is 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 creating an instantaneous. It's it's building the space time. The light itself is building the space time, and it's creating the these uh, Einstein Rosen bridges between every point that these interactions happen. So, if you were able to connect these, how do you connect two point distant points in space time? Is you'd have to have a lot of light going between those two points. That that's you know going back and forth or or, or focused. Um, and is it light in our dimension or is it light in another dimension? And that's, that gets into these, these real, uh, hyperdimensional physics that, you know, the hop vibration stuff and the stuff that Eric Weinstein's getting into. Cause I think that that's really the, the door opening in, you know, into our pathway into those hyperdimensional physics, but it starts with the material science. Cause how do you actually build it and do experiments with it? And I think that that has a lot to do with these trap polariton condensates and also these, what, what Jack Sarfati and, and others are talking about, um, in some of these groups, these frolic condensates, F-R-O-H-L-I-C-H, frolic. And this guy was a um, another physicist who came up with this this theory. And uh, it's basically these condensates where they're, they can create, you could create a supercomputer or an, a conscious AI, like mm -hmm. a, a conscious AI and a supercomputer on the surface of this polariton condensate, like a, uh, you know, with this trapped light kind of this idea. Okay. Um, and that the, that it, it would almost become conscious. And then th that's like a whole nother level of just weirdness. Cause I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that quite fully or where that's going, but I, I think that's cool as hell uh, that there's physics involved in it. And, and just, we have a whole team working on like small scale laboratory replications. Like, how do we do this? How do we build it? And then we have another couple guys who are working with, uh, they're, they're trying to use AI supercomputers to um, 
do material science, engineering, and design. So we, we, we want a 2D material that does this, that's like graphene or borophene, you know? So can we, you know, can we make, or, or, or you have a material that you want to do a certain thing. So you have to use supercomputers and AI to engineer and design these things. And then, um, first, so that way you don't have to go through the, a lot of the work because the AI can, can do a lot of those calculations and computations and thinking stuff for you. And I thought that was super interesting. We also have one of the largest databases on like all this anti-gravity stuff anywhere. We have just massive, uh, like I think 30 terabyte, no, no, 30 gigabytes. Now it's 30 gigabytes of, um, we had like a couple terabytes, but we condensed it really down. Um, what type of files are these? This, it's this text. Just, it's books. Wow. Um, texts, papers, everything that's been published related to, you know, relativity, gravity theory, um, any of these search terms like polariton condensates, uh, exciton, polariton pairs, uh, gravity, entanglement, quantum entanglement, you know, anything, anything that's related to that. And what we're thinking about doing is training our um, AI to go through that database. You know, we're going to like get a chat GP4 bot and then train it using our database and then, and then start asking it questions about anti-gravity and physics to help our engineering team, like, you know, come further along. So, um, and I, I think that, you know, there's other people probably already working on this and doing this. I don't think we're the first to think of this or, or, or do it or try it. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's what we're working on. We have that and we also have the, the altpropulsion.com with the APEC conference that, you know, I mentioned Estes Park. So Estes Park during COVID, they had Estes Park conference, which is this propulsion conference that James Woodward puts on and, and they had it online on Zoom because, you know, during COVID, no one could meet up in person. So we, we did the first thing on Zoom and that gave us the idea, man, we could be holding these conferences on Zoom. This is just the technology and where it's come is, is just great that we can do this now, you know? This didn't, they didn't have this back in 2011 when I went to MIT and did the, um, you know, cold fusion thing, but we can do this, we can do this now. And so we set up our own conference with the APEC conference and we started inviting all these guys. One of the first guests we had on was Mark McCandless. He's the ARV, the alien reproduction vehicle guy, you know, talking about that uh, flux liner and stuff. He was one of our first guests. We had, we, we've had all kinds of people. We had, we had uh, Ronald Evans of Project Green Glow on there. We had a whole episode with uh, um, a bunch of scholars from India where we, they came on and talked about all the research into Vimanas and all the history of uh, Vimana or, um, you know, ancient Indian flying saucers. And uh, we just had a, a whole bunch of names. Some of these names you probably never heard of. Glenn, Glenn Robertson, Tony, he's from um, NASA. He was one of the, he worked with Ning Li on those Podklitnov re replication experiments. Um, Mike McCulloch's over the UK. He's got a DARPA contract right now working on um, his iner uh, quantized inertia drive idea. There's Ronald Evans of Project Green Glow. We had him on a, about a month before the BBC had him on to do a, uh, a report on the same topic. Um, of course, we asked him much more detailed and deep technical physics questions because we we got we had an hour. It's an hour presentation and an hour Q and A where we just have like a team of DARPA, NASA, MIT, all all kinds of super smart guys on there just asking all the best questions. Like current, yeah, yeah. these guys are currently working at DARPA yeah, and doing yeah, something. Currently, they're yeah. not under any sort of NDAs or anything. Not for the. I mean, they might be for some of the stuff that they're doing. Like in, they can't be specific about, right? They can't share information with us, but they can sit there and get information from our guests or ask questions. Why not? 
They love what we're doing, man. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I can't believe like you never hear about this kind of shit. This is it's amazing that this this type of physics and this type of science is so it seems like it's buried. It's so hard to find. Not a lot of people. I've never heard anyone talk about this fucking this light uh, photon propulsion before. Yeah, well, NASA did a lot of started researching a lot of this under the SDI, this you know the Star Wars program with you know directed energy and and um, you know these laser light propulsion, and they they actually started out of. Um, it's interesting where you see how they create and who they recruit for these projects. So it's it's often from graduate students or graduate programs or sometimes professors, and it's usually like these obscure universities, like University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, mm. you know, um, for example. And 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 in, um, the other one I was going to mention was uh, they, they recruit out of uh, uh, Rensselaer Polytech. So Rensselaer Polytech is who they chose to, to um, go to to ask to help design the the star wars light craft microwave um propulsion you know unit so mm. they hired a bunch of guys out of rensselaer polytech to do all that and did uh, we show a picture of this thing yet yeah so that's um that's the guy named lake marabou it's l-e-i-k first name lee l-e-i-k m-y-r-a-b-o and he wrote this book called laser light craft i think it was published in canada um and somebody you know definitely not the DOD or anything, uh, went and bought out every single copy of this book that was in existence. That's the Light, book right there. Lightcraft, yeah. Flight Handbook. Is it John John S. Lewis is his When was this published? Um, you know, it was probably, Whoa. you know, Look sometime around 2010 thing. or something. But yeah, this was the idea. They, they started with these... Um, these craft that they, they, they started with a, a laser on the ground, these Navy lasers that they were using to see how far they could shoot stuff up into space. But they realized with the divergence of the beam, that's how far it, it, it splits and widens out as it gets further away from right. the, the source. Right. Um, as the beam diverged uh, and they, they lost the ability to kind of pinpoint it. So they could only shoot this thing about, I know, 400 feet or so up in the air before they could. Who is they? Know, Who is doing this? They were doing it. Uh, Mirabu was doing this at, out at U.S. Navy um, Research Labs. Uh, I forget where exactly. It might have been New Mexico. Um, okay, so they were shooting these lasers into the sky. They were, yeah. What they do is they 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 have to coordinate to so make sure that there is no satellites or anything above where they're where they're pointing the laser when they're doing the tests because this thing they could they could shoot out a satellite potentially with the, with these lasers. They're they're such high power. Um, although wow. the beam might diverge so much by that point, it might not be enough power. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that picture kind of shows a, it's like a saucer flying. How Bob Lazar described it, flying like belly, yeah, belly first and belly first. That's, yeah. that's kind of crazy, huh? <laughs> that is really crazy. <laughs> so that it's interesting that this was they were working on this kind of stuff back in the eighties. You know, Star Wars SDI program um, at some of these facilities. So he might have. He may have heard, you know, or, or learned some information about this, and weaved it into the story too. So, so he had a. There is, it's impossible to get a copy of one of these books right now. Not impossible. You probably pay. Look it up on Amazon. Look up that book on Amazon and see see what you can find. The Lightcraft Flight Handbook. Yeah, someone went and bought out all the copies. There's only I only could find one for like three grand. Three forty nine. Three hundred forty nine dollars oh, for the paperback. How long is it? Prime. <laughs> 
Oh, arrives April 18th. It's still mad expensive though. You know, that is expensive for a book. It's really, it's like more than, you know, the, even the thickest, heaviest college textbook I've ever bought. I don't think I've ever, you know, even the most expensive college textbook was. Add that to my cart. Save that for later. <laughs> yeah. You can check it out. I, it was before. I mean, it, it, it's been a while since I checked it, but a couple, uh, when I, checked it a while ago it was at like 3000 and there was no copies of it available so I, maybe they i don't people are definitely re, i mean that must be a resale might maybe a reprint a reissue or something but i don't know if they because it it seems like those kind of things go out of print and they don't want it it's like that's how they classify it it comes out in book form and they'll go out and buy up every copy of the book but why though why why would who are you saying like the, the dod would be trying Someone, to get, get yeah. rid of that or hide that why would they yeah. want to do that because they want that just for war technology secret just, war technology they just don't want it it's just a, another way of suppressing the information it's 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 security by obscurity that's the best that's the best security strategy is, is what do you think their it. concern is with that kind of information being open sourced um they are concerned that more people will know about it and therefore their ability to use it effectively in deceptive warfare um, will be mm. lessened. You know what I mean? So so if they're trying to fake you out and make you think that alien UFOs are swarming your craft, you know, say they have, say we have a bunch of these countermeasures, which we, we can create these illusions of UFOs and fleets of things um, and even have some drones with maybe some of this light craft technology on them that they can, they can do some of these crazy maneuvers, hypersonics even, you know? So there's hypersonic technology that was developed from this. Do you know that? No. So hypersonics uh, started with this su super cavitation, these super cavitating torpedoes that would super cavitate um, the water like the, like this, you know what the pistol shrimp is? No. So the pistol shrimp will actually super cavitate. It creates this like flick, really hypersonic flick, and it creates a, a, a supersonic bubble, which super cavitates really quickly, and it actually knocks out their prey. It will knock out a fish and like stun them completely. Find knock a picture of the shrimp. The mantis shrimp or the pistol shrimp. The pistol shrimp. Or mantis shrimps do it too, so... Yeah, it's got this one claw that creates this super cavitation effect in it, right? In water. And um, what happens is for a brief moment, the water vaporizes and turns to gas and and it also like ev evacuates the area. So like it, it it blows out. So it creates like a vacuum for oh, a brief wow. period of time. So it allows it to like lunge towards its prey? Like No, it doesn't lunge toward the prey. What it does, a fish comes near and it creates this shock wave that is it stuns the fish and knocks it out it just it, it creates such a sh strong powerful shock wave that it just knocks the fish right out knocks it out cold it's a manchester shrimp punch you know and you're saying that this tech this is like so what's what they use with rockets they use it and it, they're using it in in in, in icbms some of the advanced uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles will use this what they do is they direct energy they shine a laser a laser point there's a laser tip in the nose cone that blasts energy a, uh, a certain distance. And again, you mentioned how they use these computers to calculate that distance away that they need to do that detonation for the, uh, for the atomic bomb. It's similar to that. They create this detonation in front of the nose of the rocket or the torpedo or whatever. So they super cavitate the air or water and uh, so that, that the rocket or, or, or torpedo is actually flying through a vacuum so that they can eliminate uh, or greatly reduce the air drag um, by production of these, these, uh, directed energy induced plasmas Whoa. and so they're able to get craft up above Mach 10 uh using this super cavitation technology which they're which is uh 
this is a, again, this is developed from, this is a, a, a grandchild of that marabou lightcraft technology because they started out with the lasers and they're like, oh, creating these plasmas in the sky. And they're like, oh, well, we can, the problem is we need to move that, the, the laser off the ground and actually put it on, on the, the craft. That was the first step. And then once they did that, they could, they could figure out how to, you know, they figured out how to tone it just right to create this super cavitating effect. So and how, how do you know that this has been published, that these are being actively, yeah. like they're being tested on these ICBMs or yeah, There's rockets? no video tests of it anywhere. There's one video I could find of a torpedo test, I think of South Korea doing some tests with these, these super cavitating torpedoes, but there's no like videos or anything on it, but you can find the patents. You look up uh, Kevin Kremeyer, K-R-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And um, he's got a bunch of patents on this, including one where they actually they actually shine the they shine the laser down on the surface of a plane's wing, and they can take control of they can control the airflow over. Um, That's what that is, right? Yeah, yeah. So they can basically. Take, oh my god! They could take control over your plane and fly you from uh, remotely you, by um, affecting by creating these plasmas on your wing. They could they could flip your plane, um, ground you. They could put you in a stall. They could do lots of things to your 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 flight controls by by inducing these plasmas on the surface on, of your like Chinese airframe. And, and yeah, there's all kinds of variations and experiments that that public has no idea about that have been done with these technologies. And I think a lot of this UFO stuff is 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 almost like a Pentagon psyop to because none of the technologies are ever talked about, and it's always just like it's aliens, it's aliens, it's aliens. And it's almost like the Pentagon is like putting out, pushing, pushing this narrative super hard, um, right? To which get makes, people, right? But it also gets people to to report these things, which is good because if the Chinese and Russian have Russia have these things and they're flying them over our country, then we want them to be reported. We want to know about it, right? So, but this gives a safe a layer of safety for the DODs because now people are like reporting it, but they're not getting scared. They're just like, oh, am I seeing aliens? It's a little less scary than my seeing, you know, high tech uh, hypersonic spy drones from China and Russia. Now we can talk about the Navy pilots. The the Navy pilots, Commander Fravor in two thousand and four, yeah. off the Nimitz saw these the Tic Tac UFO, the thing that basically was like mimicking or mirroring his movements in his F eighteen, yeah. and the thing like arrived at his cap point before he like exactly where he he didn't even know where his cap point was. He got there and the thing was already there. Mm-hmm. Um, he explained that Tic Tac thing hovering above the water, creating a disturbance in the water. How do you explain that? Well, there's a, there's a couple different, you know, technologies, a lot of different missiles that can travel like it look like a Tic Tac and, and can cause those disturbances on the water and, and travel that, that fast. So, you know, I'm not absolutely convinced on that. Um, again, I take pilot, you know, testimony, is pretty credible. Um, these guys are trained. They they've seen a lot of different stuff, so it's it's hard to argue with them. Even Kevin Day, we've had Kevin Day on, and you know I believe these guys have seen. Who's some Kevin stuff. Day? He's another pilot okay. uh, that, that's seen some of this stuff. So, um, you know, and I and I've never got the chance to really sit down with Fravor or Graves and and really grill them on it because I'm I'm again I'm not like I'm only interested in extract what kind of technical intelligence data I can extract from those testimonies. And where that can get me, because that's that's where I'm at in, in this game. It's like, you know, 
if they're not telling me, you know, yeah, I know there's stuff that flies around that, that does crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I know that there's all kinds of stuff out there, but what specifically are they seeing? It sounds a lot like, you know, again, the, the cube inside of a sphere sounds like this project palladium technology, um, which yeah, is actually. So, yeah. So Graves said that he never actually saw this thing with his own eyes. Graves said that he saw these things on his radar once they upgraded the radar on their F-18s. And then yeah. some of the guys that he was flying with claimed that they saw one guy flew directly past this thing that looked like a cube inside of a sphere went right. like right by his wing. Yeah. And those are actually, uh, the project palladium had these, um, balloons that they'd put a uh, radar reflector and it was actually in the shape of an octahedron, which easily mistaken for a cube, you know, cause they look very octahedrons. Can you find a, a diagram of an octahedron? It looks very similar to a cube, but, um, yeah, so if you saw that inside of a balloon, you'd think a cube inside a sphere, right? Mm -hmm. That's an octahedron. So, um, yeah, that's actually an octahedron, and that's what's in the patents for these these balloon-type uh, devices. And um, and what is the purpose of these things? So these are early... Uh, these are early repeater technology, like um, si they're signal reflectors, and some of them would be um, a little bit more sophisticated that they could do... Um, radar repeat spoofing signals so so a lot of them were used as like spoofing so they, they would create these balloons they could inflate one out of a buoy they'd have these buoys set up that could inf spontaneously inflate these balloons and then they could they could in inflate or, de or, or detonate and pop them on command so what they could do is have one buoy here put up a balloon then pop that balloon and have another buoy put up another one so and the radar signatures would look like this balloon teleported or did a jump maneuver from one point of, to, to another. And that was like some early experiments that they did with that stuff. But then other Project these, Palladium. And this was just, uh, and the purpose of this was just to confuse enemy radars? Yeah, yeah. A lot of it was to confuse enemy radars and also to confuse, you know, you know plane, like a plane's coming in with radar. Um, a lot of planes report seeing these types of things. And then the fact that it mimicked his technologies, that sounds a lot like uh, like DRFM technology, like this dig digital radio frequency memory where it can take a, it can take a, a, a signal and then repeat it back. But um, it's, it's almost like something that's looking at it and, and then recreating that. Cause like, why did it do those maneuvers? And that also is interesting because one of, one of the ideas we had is like this projector thing, you know, that that's projecting this. And then someone pointed out, well, you know, the thing did a circle and then it followed him around in a circle. So it would have to project through him at some point, right? you know, right, for right. him to go in a circle around it. If there was like one source down the ground. So what about, you know, the SDI program put these things in satellites apparently. So they might have these types of lasers in, in, in satellites. So they could project, they could potentially project these types of things from above and SDI do that. program? That's the Star Wars Defense Initiative. Okay, got it. That's uh, under Reagan. So they had a, there's a number of these things. Then they were actually practicing with these, these lasers to be able to take out ICBMs like in, incoming. So if Russia sends over nukes, they can shoot them out of the sky with these lasers on satellites and stuff. It's a whole program that was developed. It's a, it was called the Star Wars program under Reagan. Um, and a lot of these technologies and stuff are, are, are basically, you know, the grandkids of, of those pro of that program. You know, a lot of that stuff that, that was started in the eighties under the Reagan program is connected to a lot of this stuff, but that's not the only thing There's there's a lot of other projects that were even earlier than that. Like 1958 is when the CIA set up project rainbow audit area 51. And that was their invisibility and stealth uh, program where they were trying to figure out electromagnetic frequency responses. And um, 
So EMF response is important to invisibility because it's how do you minimize your radar signature because it's your return signature and your, your cross-sectional area and a lot of things have to do with it. It's one equation that they, they have. It's actually on the Area 51 patch. They have the equation for the cross-sectional radar area of, a, of an object. And they, they just exploit that equation to figure out how to minimize that radar cross-sectional area so that you can be invisible to the radar um, by exploiting that formula. That's, that's the reason that the F-117 has those flat surfaces because fl those flat uh, surfaces minimize that um, contour. There's, there's less uh, of an edge. For, and, and it's really the edges. It's that side of the fuselage, which is that um, re reflective surface that they're trying to minimize in order to minimize that return for the radar signal. Mm. <clears throat> um, there's a lot of technologies that have been done into you know radar and counter radar. And as I mentioned, those are called ECCMs or electronic counter countermeasures. Right. So radar would be an ECM or an electronic countermeasure. You're countermeasuring. You're, you're having a countermeasure against incoming airplanes by shining your radar to be able to see them ahead of time, and um, they're using their ECCMs against your countermeasures to counter your countermeasures using, you know, shapes or flares or uh, other radar spoofing technologies like a, the Palladium one we talked about, or there's there's a bunch of Nemesis is Project Nemesis as a whole other series of these war game things where they actually can use this DRFM technology to implant you know specific signals into different radar systems so they can they can spoof certain radar systems to see whatever mm -hmm. they think they want whether it's a huge fleet or a giant mm -hmm. you know whatever they can make them see whatever so um, so i talked to ryan you saw the clip you saw i talked to ryan i asked him about possibly you know these war games that are or testing these dark technologies radar spoofing technologies on off the coast of north carolina or off the coast of san diego and his argument is that they they would have they have specific ranges that are designed to test this stuff Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two is they wouldn't be testing it for a span of 10 years from 2004 to 2015 off the busiest traffic. It's a heavy, heavily, most heavily militarized uh, sections of airspace. Right. So there's very, more There's know? more air traffic going through that area off the coast of North Carolina where he was flying than anywhere in the United States. So he was like, why would they be testing it there? And why would they be testing it over a period of 10 years? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Catalina Island uh, always looked like a good place to do testing to me because it's off the coast and stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a Naval, Navy SEAL training base there and a lot of uh, setups that looks very similar to a lot of the stuff that they have at Area 51 where they build like these mock cities and mock towns out of like cargo containers and stuff. <laughs> and they do like training, you know, bombing, bombing training and other exercises on these facilities like the seals will they'll build a whole compound and then the seals will have to set up against one team versus the other to do a raid or, or something you mm -hmm. know and and they'll do training in these types of facilities there's a lot of that on catalina island there's a lot, also a lot of like interesting microwave and radar uh, array systems set up there um that you know other uh, people have been curious about so so there's definitely infrastructure there to do this kind of stuff um again why they would do it for a period of 10 years and and why why they would do it there is another question and then yes it would definitely indeed be the, you know not the not military contractors um deploying this technology it would have to be the military itself right um doing this type of you know using this technology in, in um active training or you know warfare preparation or other types of scenarios and Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's, maybe it's just new technology and they've been training with it all along. And, um, it's just, it just happens that other people, um, see it from time to time and then have to be, you know, 
derailed from uh, with other explanations about what it is. Maybe mm. that's that's a possibility. I still haven't you know completely dismissed that yet. I I haven't dismissed the possibility that it's aliens either. I mean, it could be aliens flying out there, but then again, you know, they have the technology to get here. Why are they using their invisibility cloaks? Because metamaterials and invisibility cloaking and carbon nanotubes that uh, all those types of technologies you can produce invisibility with. We've done it. Look up Mirage Mirage effect. Um, Look up Mirage effect CNTs. CNT is short for carbon. It's incredible. We can find all this stuff right on Google. Yeah. If you know what to look for. (laughs) If you know what to look for. Right. Yeah. You got to know what to look for. You have to know the keywords. And if you don't, then you will never ever stumble across it in your random researches. Right. You know, not in a million years. But if you know what you're looking for, yeah, it will come right up. Absolutely. So they have a sheet of carbon nanotubes and they run a voltage through it and it creates a mirage effect, which bends the light around. So. Whoa. That's way easier than a warp drive, bro. So if you got warp drive, you can you can invisibility you got visibility cloaks, bro. This is underwater? Yeah, it's in a, it's underwater actually. So explain to me how this is happening. So what happens, right, is they run a voltage through those carbon nanotubes which are like what's a carbon nanotube? Uh, so like think of like graphene, you know, almost like a super almost like a real real almost like a superconductor but not quite a superconductor so it's real high um ele- really low electrical resistance in these okay. things they run a high voltage through it, it 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 produces a massive amount of heat locally very quickly so so it's it's heating up to like like maybe uh I don't know, like four or 5,000 degrees at, at, at a very small point on the surface of that. And mm-hmm. that temperature inversion creates a, um, creates a warping of the space. And this happens actually, uh, you ever heard of Fata Morgana? No. So type in F-A-T-A Morgana. So a Fata Morgana is a, another type of mirage. It's called the Flying Dutchman. Because it's where like ships will appear to be floating um, slightly above the, the surface of the water. Okay, yeah. And that's caused by you see that graph the the the, the color the red the reddish one the reddish picture that's the one yeah oh, you get a bigger you got to get a bigger version of that there has to be a a bed of of really hot air on top of a bed of of, of cold air and that that um see the the super hot air and that layer between the hot air and the cold air is yes. where that refractive index is key. And the refractive index is key because when that refractive index changes rapidly, there's a reflection off there. So, so you're actually getting a reflection off of that temperature gradient, same way that you're getting a reflection of the mirage off the temperature gradient in those carbon nanotubes. So it's um, that's how invisibility right works. Now. That's how invisibility works, man. We, <laughs> You are blowing my fucking mind. Um, our ice melted. I got to get us uh, some more ice. Well, let's, let's don't pause. Just keep running it. I'm going to go grab some ice. It's going about to get real deep. I'm going to need here, to wet my so. whistle if we're going to get deeper than this. Right. So, so the same idea you have a surface of hot air or a hot, um, a hot, the temperature gradient creates a, a, um, an inversion effect where you have, a, um, a refractive index. Mm-hmm. And that's the same effect that you look at the hot road on a hot sunny day and you get that mirage effect looking down Right, the road. exactly. Same thing in a desert. You see that when you look at like a yeah. telephoto shot of a desert, you can see it and people are walking down the, the road. The surface of the sand or the road is hotter than the surrounding air. Right. Because the sun's right there and that, that um, temperature gradient 
um, a layering effect creates it creates this. so is there any proof that this is actually being used in defense research or any kind of like technology bigger than something in a fishbowl yeah well there's so they started the 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 again i mentioned the project rainbow is the u.s um invisibility project started by edward mills Purcell. project rainbow so you can search project rainbow see right and they created a number of uh interesting technologies like one of them was uh this is where the metamaterials first uh kind of got their background so <laughs> yeah you're not maybe not get it for that but uh look up um wallpaper project rainbow wallpaper for example right so they have this stuff called the wallpaper oh no no, 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 no. So they, they created a grid and they printed on it like a grid with, um, on the wallpaper and the, and the grid was like a metamaterial that was tuned to the same frequency as the Russian radar, the, or the, the radar systems they were trying to be invisible against. And by coating the U2s with the fuselage of the U2 with this, this, uh, wallpaper stuff, they were able to make it, um, invisible. And this was like a very early version. It was very, of course, it was very thick and heavy, and it created too much drag and other other problems for the craft to really be usable and effective. Um, but that was like the big thing because you know they started. The Russians were tracking our U two flights as you know as early as the fifties, and right. so we were trying to figure out how to how we can get these these programs to go over. And this was Lockheed that made this. Yeah. Uh maybe. Developed by the yeah. Lincoln Lab team at Lockheed. Yep. Yeah, it was Lockheed. Yeah. So so then they had some of these other um ideas for for how to how to do it, um, including the yeah, the trapeze um reflectors and stuff. Um but eventually this uh this stuff developed into a study on, you know, ma materials themselves. So so actually the paint the, the black paint they use on the SR seventy one, which replaced the U two. As, as a recon plane um, and also the paint that's on the f-117 it's this black very uh dull black paint right it's yeah, actually brett was talking about this when you guys were on when you were on his show yeah briefly yeah so they they actually figured out it's made out of barium titanate um a version of barium titanate and uh the which is a ferroelectric and it has an interesting radar response so they use this paint with a uh, metamaterials built into the paint to make it more radar absorbent and um, they burned a bunch of this stuff out at because uh, they have to replace, they have to scrape off and replace the paint very often because it's it's very uh, susceptible to weather and other, mm -hmm. other things. Um, they, in order to keep it fresh, they, it costs a ton of money to maintain and, and this, you know to, to repaint these these things and do it. And also the toxicity of disposing of this stuff. They were burning in open burn pits out at Area 51, and a bunch of guards got sick. You can look up a case of the guy. The guy's name is Fred Dunham. And he's uh, one of the guards that got like super sick uh, from these open burn pits. So they were actually, you know, burning the stuff and people were breathing in and getting sick mm. out there uh, as a way to dispose of the technology, supposedly, so that, you know, it wouldn't get out. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's some, there is evidence of them using this, yes, and, and on active craft. Oh, there it is. And <laughs> there's, is there any like, has there ever been any footage of, what we saw on those little tubes inside the water of basically the thing becoming invisible. Oh, of like, at, well, like, a, like this cloaking technology. So if you look up, um, look up BAE stealth tanks. So they have these polychromatic, this is the earlier version of this, this is a, a, ver, a, a different version. So they use these polychromatic B, hexagon panels. BAE is what? 
BAE is British Aerospace okay. uh, or something like that. BAE. Uh, right. It used to be Marconi. Believe it or not. Look at that tank. Look at the look, click on the one with the guy standing next to it. Right, right there. Holy shit. Look at that thing, dude. It's like a Tesla tank. Yeah. So the those those hexagon panels on the side of it can uh, change the color and all they can also they they change color to make it like uh, visual camouflage, but they they can also change heat signature with infrared. So look at that that uh, image with where the tank is in the infrared the infrared one um in the middle on the bottom. Oh, right, right there, there, yeah. So that's the tank, and then it, it activates the panels, and it looks like an SUV out there from the heat signature because it, it it changes it cools the the other panels and and heats the other ones up. Oh wow. Um. Yes, it's. I don't know what BAE actually stands for. I thought it stood for like British Aerospace. It's like the it's like the British but... version of Lockheed or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, you know where Britain's Area Fifty One is? No, Porton Down. What's the significance that's, of Porton Down? Porton Down is where the area—that's Britain's Area Fifty One. That's oh, okay. where they do all their classified, you know, aerospace and physics research. What, and stuff. what country? What country do you think has the most sophisticated? U.S. No, definitely U.S. Yeah, we we definitely definitely have the other countries beat. What but, makes you think that? What also, makes you sure about that? The other, I'm not so sure because China. The thing is, China has a lot of us be the academic literature on some of this stuff they are you know decade a decade ahead of us on a lot of the stuff and also our electronics i mean they they produce all of our our, our cutting edge electronics in mm -hmm. fact the, the pentagon's put out reports about you know warning us about how you know we don't catch up to china soon we're going to have real problems because you know even even with the computer issue with all the computers Pen the pentagon's computers you know that you can't find you can't buy a computer anywhere that doesn't have a chinese chip in it or right. a chinese manufacturer so so like they're finding all these hardware problems with these these little tiny chips that have these call home functions or uh, other things they're built into these circuit boards that are um contacting chinese servers and sharing information you know so like they they have all these problems and holes and and, and it's like a, a crisis right now in the pentagon to try mm. to to try to get our own manufacturing inter infrastructure for integrated electronics and computer chips and stuff going here so that we don't have to be so reliant on china and um for this kind of stuff but also as far as like the, you know the some of these you know polariton condensates and all that you know entanglement and those type of technologies is way more papers that I find in the academic literature from Chinese universities than I do from the American universities, which is, you know, disturbing because it's like, we're not spending enough time and we're not taking this seriously enough and looking into it enough. And China is, and, and if we don't pay attention soon, they're going to be deck, they, they could be decades ahead of us within mm. you know, a short period of time. But as far as, you know, as far as the actual development of it and, and, and application of it, there's a, the U S has, has done more as far as I'm aware. I mean, this, this stuff that I know about, that the U.S. has done, and I know, I mean, I don't know how I'd know about China doing any of it, but there's obviously a lot of espionage going on. So the Chinese are, yeah. are they copy everything that we do. So right, that's a whole other issue. So I want to, I want to tie this back into these. So you have all these spoofing technologies. You have all these, you know, yeah. technologies that can be used to fake UFOs and different, so, different, yeah, okay. confused for UFOs, right. Then you have the issue that there might be real UFOs out there. Of course, you know, 
I, I like to think of the prime directive uh, interpretation of, you know, why the solution to the Fermi paradox. So like this, all this statistics and stuff say that aliens should be out there. Why aren't they contacting? Why don't we see them? Right. Where are they? And uh, I like the uh, zoo, zoo hypothesis is, is my favorite. You know, it's called the zoo hypothesis that we're, we're being, we're being, we're like a zoo and, and they're just observers, but they're hidden from us. So we can't see them. They, they keep themselves hidden and they, and they, yeah, they, they kind they, of watch. Yeah. It's like almost there. It's like almost like they're, they're mocking us or messing with us to, yeah. the, to the point where like, when you think of UFOs, they are, they show themselves enough to where they can convince the person willing to believe, but they can't convince the skeptic. Right. Right. And the other thing is that, um, Right, in Star there's, Wars, there's no actual like, there's no real sorry. solid evidence of it, right? Like, there's just that little bit they give you, right? And well, it's also the Star Trek. In Star Trek, they have this thing called the Prime Directive. That one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek is is called "Who Watches the Watchers," and it's uh, about them watching this Bronze Age civilization, and uh, one day their invisibility cloak malfunctions and fails, and someone from the Bronze Age civilization discovers their outpost and sees them. And then, so he goes back and starts telling, you know, all the villagers about what he saw. And uh, so they want to kind of correct him and they show him, they bring him up on the spaceship and try to show him a couple things and explain stuff to him and then send him back. And it just, it, you can see the the tales as he tells it to all the villagers, it just morphs into a religion and all these other things mm. um, very quickly uh, from, from, you know, his experience of his interaction with these higher beings. And... Um, it just it, and then they set up this thing. Well, it's the prime directive. We we shouldn't have any contact with non warp civilizations. So you know, once you once you discover warp drive and you can open up the cosmos, then you know, then we'll make contact. But pre warp civilizations, we don't make contact with. And I like I like that. I like that idea very much. And I there's no proof or you know evidence for it. it, it I just uh, I th that's the one that resonates with me the best. And then obviously resonated uh, well with Gene Roddenberry as well. If he wouldn't mm, put it anything <laughs> that we can't understand, something that's way too advanced for us, we think of it just to be God. You know, like there's all those yes. famous paintings from from the Renaissance era where there's these paintings depicting a UFO. There's a there's a famous, uh, what, what is it, Ezekiel in the Bible? Ezekiel's wheel, yeah. Ezekiel's wheel. Yep. Yeah, the wheel, the wheel and the ring of fire in the sky. Again, if you were seeing a light craft that was being propelled by, you know, trapped in and light energy, mm -hmm. how would you describe it? <laughs> it sounds right. like that. God. Yeah. A ring of fire. And sounds some like of this God. Stuff. Yeah. A lot of the angels' stories sound like, uh, like too. One of the things I want to say about the, uh, about aliens and species and stuff. Yes. I made like a video back in the day where I talked about this idea that, just imagine that we had, you know, gene editing technology where we could go in and, you know, change anything we wanted. Um, and we wanted to create a perfect spacefaring race because we're not really built for outer space, man. Right. You know, like uh, astronauts who go into space for a long time have have lots of problems, you mm -hmm. know, so we're not like, we're built for, we're built for Earth. Not even outer space, just like outer orbit. Yeah, outer orbit, like the the stuff that happens. So, so imagine we were going to re-engineer our bodies and, and make some adaptations, you know, so let's add some chlorophyll to our skin so that, you know, we don't have to eat. We can just use sunlight and let's, um, you know, we'll make our eyes way better at seeing, you know, we can add some more spectrum, you know, we can expand the actual color spectrum of what we see, you know, uh, did you know that th there's 
pit vipers that can see infrared. Mm -hmm. And there's also um, butterflies can see like high ultraviolet, like a whole other range of frequencies mm -hmm. that we can't. And birds can too, like like flowers and other stuff look different to insects and, and birds and stuff than mm -hmm. they do to us. Different colors show up different ways and and uh, and whatnot. So imagine we could like incorporate all that into our, our uh, eyes. So we make our eyes really big so they can, you know, see really well in the dark and low space and, and also see really good. Could edit our voice box, you know, make it so that we can make any animal sound or any noise or any, you know, you know, you know, stuff like that. We could, you could edit and, and just gene code. Uh, and eventually you'd end up with something that looks like an alien gray, you know, like right. big eyes and green skin and, you know, all these things. So, uh, suction cups on the ends of the fingers was another interesting thing they described. Because if you're going to manipulate things in space, you want to be able to do it with one finger. And all you need is a suck. If you have an octopus suction cup on the end of your finger, it's real easy to pick stuff up and move it around. Mm. Well, that was another interesting thing that was. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, are you, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the Rua Zimbabwe UFO. Yeah. That Zimbabwe UFO. Where there was, uh, I think, 60 school children. Um, the aerial school? Aerial school in Zimbabwe. Yeah. yeah where there were 60 school children who all reported a very similar incident of these crafts that landed outside of the playground and these beings that came out and then like communicated with them telepathically. That's interesting. And they all had, um, the, the, uh, Harvard psychologist, psychiatrist, John Mack mm -hmm. went there and he interviewed all of the kids separately mm -hmm. and they all, they, they didn't have like perfect, um, their stories weren't like perfectly similar, but they were they varied a little bit, right? Like they each had yeah. a different experience, but it was all generally the same. They all, they all said that they, when they looked into these things, eyes, they had this, um, this feeling or thought of technology is bad. Hmm. And they said that they never talked and they never made a sound, but they were all standing there talking, like looking at them. And when they looked into their eyes, they had this sort of like telepathic communication experience with these things about That's like the future of technology and and all and there were 60 of them and it's been it's one of the most mind-blowing like close encounters in his in the history of the world yeah because there's so many witnesses and the kids even to this day they still recall it they still like vividly can recall what happened. Yeah, I remember that case. It's a super interesting case. And I've seen like a lot of the skeptics, you know, takes on it where they're like, oh, we could fake this, you know, let's, let's see how many school children think this really, we could fake an incident and then see how many school children would actually believe it happened and, and other stuff too. And, you know, there are some technologies um, out there that can actually beam voices in your head voice mm -hmm. of God technology. Right. I've heard of this. It's called microwave auditory effect. I mm -hmm. think it was discovered in the late 1960s with a, with a certain frequency of microwaves can create a clicking sound in your ear. Um, there are different noises in your ear and then they can actually create multiple clicks and then modulate the clicking frequency and the noise to actually, you know, modulate voices and other signals into your, into your, uh, using it. Mm -hmm. so they could actually beam voices inside, you know, inside your ear, but, that's not telepathically. You'd actually be physically hearing that. You wouldn't be like thinking right. it and feeling that in your head. Right. That, that's another level of technology. You know what I mean? That's right. something different. If you're like, you know, getting a message in your brain directly beamed to you, that's different than, you know, these technologies that yeah. we have. You know, that's different than 
voice of God. These uh, were like th these these kids described them as as feelings or like images in their minds, hmm. not any kind of like audio. There was no audio. It's interesting. There's so many of them that show up and kind of like you know the kids that say that they were taken on board and shown this like rapid collage of images um of, of the you know the human race and like all the bad things and stuff that technology has brought and, and stuff and uh there's other ones that have said that like oh the aliens have warned us that they're us from the future and that we're gonna screw up our genetic code and end up like them and not be able to get back um and weird stuff like that and i think that's kind of scary considering you know what we're doing now with some of the experimental you know technologies and in, in in bio in 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 biology in general um mm. i think it's like mrna mrna, so MRNA can edit it's a, like a genes like crispr and they can edit your genes and now they can do it through your food they can put stuff in your food that you can absorb through your digestive system that will actually activate, you know, and change your RNA. So they, they're talking about this. They're talking about this in, in articles about, you know, saying that people who don't get the vaccine will be able to just put it in the food, you know, now. People, really? No matter Did you, you ask Brett about this? Stuff. No, I didn't. I didn't. But uh, I, I should. I, I didn't learn about this until afterwards. But yeah, that that's, I thought that was like kind of crazy man that would be good that would be a good one i, I should ask brett to talk more do you about think that, there's any he's... possibility that these things these gray aliens it seems like that these seem to be the common depiction i, I always wonder like wh who was the first person to come up with this idea hmm. of this being and you know i always think i always wonder you know especially when you think about alien civilizations and you know well, there's also the tall grays there's the short little mini the mini ones the three foot or four foot ones mm -hmm. then there's also the the reptilians apparently um do you think there's any possibility that this is could be us from the past and it's just like a, a super advanced version of us that somehow got off the planet yeah that's another theory too it's like the, the breakaway civilization theory right that, you know it's it's something else that got away and then went you know light years into the future in a different timeline um or something could be uh mm. again i don't think we know enough about the physics at this point to really to tell one way or another i mean there's guys that are saying well if you have warp drive you have time travel and then you have time mm -hmm. travel and but then I, I just look at time travel like well if i can just go back and edit any event that ever happened then what's reality because i can just go back and you know, just change it. You know? Right. So then you get into a whole existential, you know, argument and debate there mm. once you get into to if you believe in time travel or not. Because, and I, I don't believe in time travel in that sense. I think that, you know, it's allowable within the realm of physics, but you have to understand that the universe is what's called a discrete event system. And in control theory, a discrete event system is a system where discrete events happen independently and of one another and sort of tangential and influence and then cross influence one another like the universe works and that's how everyone works in the in this universe i believe is is that it's a, a it's um a discrete event system and that in order to reverse time globally you'd have to reverse the time in all of those discrete events and you can only do time reversals on individual discrete events I don't think it's it, it's possible to do a complete group time reversal on all these discrete events because they, I just don't see it as being possible. Mm. And I wish I was more good with, I wish I was better with the mathematics to be able to prove that with like some kind of theory or something, but I'm not. So but right. someone else might be and, and be able to do that. But um, 
you know, I, 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 that's the issue of time travel is if they're, if they're beings from the future and stuff, I, I don't necessarily believe that. Although if, you know, like, because you can go further into the future, like Buzz Lightyear, you know, every time he goes further into the future, but he can't go back. You know, you can, you can go far into the future. You can stay young and go into the future if you stay traveling at light speed forever. You right. Know? But, well, you can't go back before the time travel was created. Yeah. Right. Like you can go f from whenever we figure out time travel, we can go from, there. from then on. We can travel forward and backwards, but we can't go before we figured out time travel. Yeah. And that's that's related to that whole event. Yeah. The, the system of events and causality mm -hmm. and uh, everything if you get into the time cones and the Penrose uh, charts and diagrams yeah. and all that stuff. So that's some interesting, interesting physics, interesting takes on physics. And, uh, but as far as, you know, explaining all the UFOs, I, I don't think that our scientists are there yet as far as our classified programs. Cause I've seen what, you know, they're working on the classified programs. I've seen what DARPA is throwing money at and, uh, if they had these things, they wouldn't be wasting their time. You know what I mean? If they had figured this out in the 50s and they had warp drives and anti-gravity, they wouldn't be wasting their time giving, you know, a couple million dollars to Mike McCulloch to look into, you know, quantized inertia. They wouldn't be interested. You know, they wouldn't be doing the other research they're doing. Maybe they would just to throw people off. I don't know. It's 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 a it's a hard game to play, but you're looking at the real scientists, and and you have to look, work with what's out there. Because at the end of the day, I mentioned on Brett's podcast that who do the science, who do the government go to for answers on UFOs? At the end of the day, they're asking the scientists, right? You know, so even if the government is an authority on this and, and takes an authority, there at the end of the day, they're they're talking to the scientists, and maybe there's some you know, scientists out there that are more privy to and access to the information and have more um, uh, data sets that aren't available to the public. And that's what uh, I'm concerned with and, and whether those data sets can be made available to the public or not or whether they should. And, you know, I've kind of gone through that stuff and deep on this path looking for those answers. And I'm reporting on everything that I find. And, and so who do you, so who or what do you think is responsible for these Nimitz and East Coast UFOs? They're so close to our military ranges and our military centers of these technologies and these, you know, SoCal test range and, and Camp Pendleton right there, you know, Catalina Island on the West Coast. Uh, and then Norfolk, Virginia, there's, you know, military base right there, BAE systems and a bunch of stuff. Um it just seems more plausible to me that it's some kind of our own technology that we're running or testing or doing stuff with. And but didn't then, you just say you thought it wasn't that we were not there yet? Oh, that stuff. I this is what we're seeing. I don't think is warp drive technology. I don't think we're seeing. Oh, okay. You're talking you know, about different. Okay, I see. I'm talking about yeah. That, that what as I mentioned is warp drive technology, like the ability to go interstellar or okay. Um, or maybe even But you do so these these things that are flying these modern UFOs that we've been seeing in the past 20 years you think that those are those how are those being propelled how what is the means of propulsion with those do you think Um if they're actual craft and not just like the laser induced plasmas and holograms and stuff like that if they're actual craft then then they might they're probably drones you know what's interesting I did a lot of research into craft and found a lot of drone research connected to this stuff fact if you read lewis witten's um auto he, he did an interview on um american institute of physics with uh 
and I, I read it, and he talks about this work with, that he did with Martin Marietta Corporation. He says that in 1947, the first job that he was hired to work on out at Martin Marietta Corporation was pilotless um, aircraft. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and um, not just that, but uh, like control and guidance systems for them and stuff. So mm -hmm. it's, it's it's super interesting that back in the 40s, you know, you have this guy working on this in this classified program, and then he's he's also can you know the guy they picked to look into anti-gravity a couple of years later this i thought that that's yeah. super interesting because there's a big overlap with a lot of this you know pilotless uap and drone technology and, and this there's, there's there's so much of it you find um like for instance a company that merged with uh them later was called teledyne ryan and teledyne ryan did a, a number of these um craft they're you know triangular ufos a lot of the triangular ufo sightings i now believe were teledyne ryan's craft and their research that they were doing back in the 70s and 80s um they had developed this craft called the tr3a black manta and uh it was a little flying triangle wing black you know triangle and mm -hmm. people were seeing these things all around um uav drone technology i just haven't seen anything in video and again, I point out, and Brett asked me a good, great question. I was just thrown for a loop because, you know, is there any video evidence that you do find like super convincing? You know, and I'm not interested in video evidence because, you know, the skeptics aren't convinced by it. And yeah. I pointed out that, you know, 1993, you had that one video that looked cool with the crop circles and the UFO that made the crop circles. But 1993 was also. I'm not the, familiar with that video. There's a, there was a video that, um, Apparently, this guy had a, a, a camera set up over watching the field and caught a UFO, made a crop circle and stuff. It went viral on on the internet a, a ways back. Was this like Skinwalker Ranch? Something. No, like but I pointed there? out that 1993 is when Jurassic Park came out. So they create fake looking real dinosaurs in movies. Yeah, I don't trust you know? anything I see in video. I don't. So, I don't. It's, it can be so easily with with CGI. As I said anything before 1993, which is like the the quality of film from back then. Every UFO video is like crap. You know, the, mm -hmm. the probably the best UFO footage that I would say exists. If I were, if I really had to think about it and go back, is actually the um, Mariana UFO footage from the 1950s because it's from the 1950s. Right. And it's just a it's just an interesting case. So the, the, that's the Mariana M A R I A N I A case. And that's interesting because Dennis, Dennis Mariani or um it's Mariana is the you know and sorry I'm getting the spelling wrong because I'm thinking two things at once because Bob Lazar said his 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 um his boss at Area fifty one was Dennis Mariani. Oh, okay. and we've never been able to find Dennis Mariani. They never tried. They they got they apparently got Mike Thigpen and tracked him down. Although I haven't seen the evidence for that, but apparently who is this guy? This is Nick Mariana. Okay, so this is Mariana, one of the oldest and most famous UFO cases from you know the 1950s in Montana. He recorded this early UFO footage, mm -hmm. and this is. You know, one of the, because you can't, it, it, by the time video started getting good, that's when also when CGI started getting good. So, man, it's like, how do you rely on or trust anything? Right. This is Alan R. Wynn. This is the film in double frame or slow motion. Look like Tic Tacs, right? Yeah. The movement of the objects as well as the towers perceptible. 
This is due to the handheld camera. The film, analyzed frame by frame, shows the movement of the object to be horizontal and steady. We will now vary the action and size of the objects and also stop the action from time to time for your study. We have just made a jump cut in the film to an enlarged size and reversed the action. Yeah, it's it's again it's early UFO footage. Probably, right. This is probably taken on a eight millimeter, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, some of the early stuff really boggles my mind because there's a lot of pilots that have record, you know, that have reports and there's accounts of these pilots seeing these things. Like there was a case in the fifties with uh, the swarm of UFOs that were close to the White House. Yeah, yeah. They went past the White House. They scrambled planes and jets to to go like track them down. There was even a guy who I think shot at one of them. Yeah, right. Um, there's there's lots of uh, like Lonnie Zamora. Yeah, uh, the police officer. The police officer yeah. who saw the thing. They came and they saw like they actually found the marks in the ground where they thought that thing where they saw that where he saw yeah. that saucer had landed. Yep. You know, there's just so many old cases that just scramble my brain when I'm trying to think of this new stuff. Like, why don't we see that old stuff anymore? We don't like, we don't see any of those traditional flying right? saucers. Is Michael Schratt has like a whole archive of all those cases and stuff. And he draws like the, 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 the you know, the pictures of them and stuff. And he talks about the cases and it's, it's kind of curious how the stories, the technology kind of coincides with the, the literature of the era. So like the, the, the UFOs of the 1950s and sixties look more like Buck Rogers you know, and UFOs of today and stuff look, you know, more more like, uh, you know, I, I guess like Star Star Trek or, or, right. or something, you know, like something more modern. So like the, these things have developed in, you know, on their own too, which also kind of leads me to the conclusion that these are our, our replications of these technologies and maybe they fly on some, you know, different principles or something. Maybe they were experimenting with some neat, new technology during the time because we had a space program bro like I, w I went to um up to they had the whole man on the moon exhibit up in boston mm -hmm. and i went to it with i took my kids and when i went to that man on the moon exhibit they had all the stuff from the space program and i was just i was i was like i felt like the like I was like going over more stuff than they had on the plaques and telling more history about everything <laughs> than they were telling on all the plaques and stuff. And I just was like astonished at this, this whole period there from like 1945 to 1958 that they just completely left out. You know, they said like, oh, well, just 1958, you know, we started NASA and there, there, we had a space program. No, we had a secret space program for like a decade and a half before that became NASA. And then we had Na we had NACA and a bunch of other organizations that, you know, were, were running a lot of these, you know, programs and stuff mm -hmm. like AIM, AIMS Research Labs and the AIMS scientists and stuff. And that's fascinating because you look at the Bifeld-Brown case, right? Guy was, it discovered this effect in 1928, was trying to like get it out there and talk about it. Finally met with some people from the military, gave a whole presentation on it in the 1940s. They told him he was crazy go home and then they went and hired a bunch of aim scientists to do the research instead and you know so that that's just the, kind of what they do in the public domain they, they ridiculed it discredited it in mm -hmm. the public domain and then they threw this guy to the curb said you're ridiculous this doesn't work and there's nothing to it 
and then they went and funded a, a research study into it with some of their own scientists behind the scenes. So, mm. so this seems to be a, like a, a recurring theme in a lot of these, you know, topics like, um, you know, cold fusion came up in the, in the eighties and they, you know, debunked it very thoroughly in the mainstream press and, uh, with some experiments and then it kind of disappeared and, and, um, but they research, they've been, you know, the spay war in the U S Navy is still researching cold fusion to this day. So, so like they're still looking into it, even though they covered it up and suppressed it and they didn't want it to get out. It's, it's almost like what it seems, but then there's also egos involved with a lot of the people that, that jumped on board from both sides as well. So, so there's a, a cold fusion is a whole nother, uh, interesting animal of itself. What is cold fusion? So cold fusion uh, is now, I guess, a lot of the scientists like to call it LENR or lattice um, assist, LANR, lattice assisted nuclear reaction or low energy nuclear reaction. And it's this idea that, um, you know, normal fusion, what you have is the Coulomb barrier, and the Coulomb barrier is the force between, you know, two two nuclei. And as you try to move the nuclei together, the the positive charges repel and they push each other apart. So the harder you try to push them together, the more they push apart. And right. there's, a, there's this barrier that if you can push them together with enough force and energy, you can get them to stick together and get a little bit extra energy out of it because the mass the mass drops and the, some of that mass gets released as energy. There's a conversion equals mc squared. Right. So you get a little bit of that mass out as energy from the fusion process, but pushing these things to the Coulomb barrier is very difficult. You got to use these, you know, magnetic bottles like the ITAR or the, uh, the, the Takamak reactors and stuff. And, you, or you have to use, um, in the sun, a lot of gravity and a lot of, you know, heat. So the heat gets these molecules going really fast and the gravity pushes them really close together. So their quantum mechanical behavior of them moving really fast, plus being in close proximity allows for the, 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 tunneling through that Coulomb barrier and allows for fusion. Um, although we're not exactly quite sure how that process takes place, um, even on the sun, you know, there's debate about that. So, um, but in these low energy nuclear reactions, what you're having is, is the first experiment that Pons and Fleischmann did is they packed a ton of uh, deuterium. So deuterium is, is hydrogen with an extra neutron. So it's heavy. It's, it's heavy. It doesn't change the the atomic number it just changes the the weight of it so it's a little it's it's like hydrogen but it's extra heavy and then they pump that into a lattice of palladium using electricity so they have the deuterium in heavy water in solution and then they charge the water um and then charge the cat the cathode and so like the 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 deuterium and all the molecules get absorbed into the cathode and they get packed into this lattice structure of the metal and as they get packed into the lattice structure of the metal, they, be, they become really, really close to one another. And um, something about that in the physics of, of that lattice structure, once they get to about a 94% loading, they start to see these uh, fusion effects hmm. in, the, um, in the cathodes. And this has been confirmed by a number of labs and a number of scientists who have replicated and done this research and have been trying to figure out ways to extract usable energy from it. And so far, no one's done that. Um, but there's a big debate and uh, controversy over over it. And there has been for 30 years now, since uh, the 1980s, when Pons and Fleischmann first went forward with that discovery. And it was called, it was, it was highly criticized because they wanted, 
they thought that it would get shut down, so they wanted to create a press conference to get the you know information out there, and so they were criticized heavily for doing science by press conference instead mm -hmm. of uh, science by the academic and peer review method. But as uh, science has shown in the thirty years past, <laughs> that that method and that that you know uh, approach has, has has failed tremendously in science. It has failed science tremendously. Um, in fact. Before we created these these journals and and all this um, this sort of stuff, it, there was a much more free and open science, and and people were more free to experiment and uh, mm. create new ideas. But we've sort of with this peer review process and this this uh, method, we we've stifled a lot of a lot of uh, new thinking and new ideas, and um, you know enforced a lot of old beliefs. And we've seen that happen through science and, and history with like plate tectonics or the Piltdown Man or other other uh, scientific discoveries or mm. revolutions or controversies. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting what's happening in science right now. I don't necessarily believe that peer review is all bad. It's good to have, you know, people who are on your level and do the work you do reviewing your work. Um, but I also see how it could be used manipulatively um, in certain situations. Right. So... I, I like what we're doing. We 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 kind of have this open source disclosure um, approach where we're trying to just put the information out there, just to get it out there. And then um, we have the experimental side where we try to you know verify or, or or get results with it, and that's also open source so that um, you know get the information out there a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Um. Because again, you're dealing with this massive secrecy and this wall of information where you're trying to get data and trying to sort that out from the crap. You know, what's where's the noise and where's the signal? You know, because some of this stuff is is real and can be used in, for real things, and some of it can't. And what are the limitations of that? Like, mm -hmm. how good is it, and how well does it explain this or that? Yeah, it's this is an open field, man, and. and I look at like what's going on in the mainstream media and to bring technology and not include technology in this conversation is, is, uh, is a sin. Entertainment is a huge driver of this topic, right? Mm. There's so much money in the documentaries and the history channel TV shows yeah. that just attract the layman to just be, you gotta, you gotta add in the drama to yes. get normal people interested in this stuff, right? You can't just talk about particle physics and photons and neutrons. No, I'll lose everyone. You're gonna I probably lose, lost half lose... your audience. <laughs> no, you, I guarantee you, that's not true. Um, but for the yeah. layman, for the for the average, I hope they're looking it up and and, and trying to like right. learn more about it and stuff. So, because uh, I am too, man. For it... the average working class <laughs> person that's sitting at their, you know, in their living room in bumfuck Montana that are was watching the History Channel about Skinwalker Ranch or about you know Bob Lazar Area Fifty One. That's it's, another it's, interesting. It's, it's thing. like infotainment, right? It's so infotainment. it's it's information, but it's dramatized and it's turned into uh, a, a TV a. a a piece of art like a movie to yes. make people to draw people in but what's good about that is it brings more money into the topic yeah it, it creates an economy who's that money <laughs> it cre well it, it, no matter who's getting it doesn't matter who's getting it, it i think even if it is the tv companies getting the money it's creating an economy around this topic which i think mm. is only going to draw in more people to this topic right it's going to 
that will essentially drive more interest, more people like you, you know, more people even younger than you who are just going to see a podcast like this one day and decide to dedicate the rest of their lives to studying physics and just figuring out how this shit works. I mean, that's what, that's what I dreamed of. And I, and you know, what's awesome is that I started my channel in 2008 and I've gotten to see the people that like started watching me early on mm -hmm. go through, a, you know, go through undergraduate and then, you know, some of them have gone through grad school and seeing people that like got inspired by, you know, me talking about this kind of stuff to go and study physics on their own. And yeah. some of them, you know, come back to me and they're like, you know, thank you. Or, or years later, I have, you know, I even have, you know, grad students and PhDs and stuff that, that, that like, dude, thank you for this or, or that, you know, like I have people that wrote their PhD thesis based on stuff that they learned about on my channel, which is like, right. that's awesome, bro. Cause that, that, that is where we need this to be. And that gives me so much hope for the future because mm -hmm. if we don't have people thinking about these things critically and really understanding, you know, our universe and, and the science and, and the technology that's out there, we're not going to ever be able to figure this stuff out. And if we're just diving into this world where, we, where we're mixing it with the paranormal and you know, werewolves and dino beavers and, and all this other stuff. I think we lose a lot of that, a lot of that, and like the ghosts and stuff. And that stuff's cool. And I see how some people are just like are drawn to the, those topics because there is so much mystery and, and um, yeah. intrigue. What do you think about Robert Bigelow? Oh. Speaking of ghosts. <laughs> Bob Bigelow. Um, Bob Bigelow is interesting guy. You know, he, he's super interested in the UFO topic and he's got a ton of money. So mm -hmm. that's that's kind of how he got into it. He's always been fascinated by. Did you watch his interview with, with Joe Rogan? Yeah, I watched it on with his interview with Joe Rogan and the he's ones he did with George Knapp. It's he's talking about like this remote viewing technology. He's talking about poltergeists in his house. I mean, he got sucked sucked into a lot of like real crazy, um, weird stuff. Uh, unfor I think unfortunately, um, you know. A lot of that stuff is tied up in these programs too, is, is I believe counterintelligence to sort of like, right. you know, just confuse and muddy the waters and confuse the issues and, and then also mix up the alien stuff with, you know, just nonsense so that people, you know, scientists and other people don't take it, take the, the other stuff. Cattle so, mutilations. So yeah. The, the cattle mutilations is another thing. I brought that up on Brett's podcast and I talked about the Mirage Men thing and, and I had a bunch of people like, you know, talking about different ideas on that you know what well, why wouldn't the military just pay for the cattle you know why wouldn't they just buy it or set it you know like well obviously they can't you know directly be buying the cattle they don't want people to know so they could set up a front company or something else you know easily they do it all the time to, to just buy the cattle so if of, you've if any for let's kind of like lay some context to this cattle yeah okay thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah sorry i'm just jumping into that and people people haven't yeah. seen that so this is a movie called mirage men mm -hmm. and um this it in the Mirage Men, they kind of did this investigation into into this cattle mutilation thing where they talk about this operation, uh, or Project Plowshare, it was called. And it was a series of um, nuclear tests that they did underground during the time. And so they were burying these nukes deep in the ground, like Broken Arrow, where they mine huge mining tunnel, send a nuke down there on a train and blow it off. And then they were trying to monitor the, the spread of the radioactivity um, to see if they were contaminating groundwater and other things. So apparently they were the ones abducting these cattle or taking these cattle and cutting the thyroid glands out in order to test the thyroid. Th your thyroid has uh, iodine in it and has uptake of iodine. So if there's radioactive iodine, 
that's produced from nuclear fallout or from a blast, it's going to end up in the environment and it's going to get picked up immediately by your thyroid gland. That's why a lot of people um, develop thyroid cancer from the radioactive iodine that your, your thyroid gland um, absorbs. So one way to test how this contamination is getting out into the environment is to take local animals and cut out their thyroid glands and test the iodine levels for the radioactive isotope. Mm. And so if you're going to do this and you don't want the public to know about it, you might, you know, cut out other things like their tongues and their eyeballs and their livers, and you might drop them from helicopters and do other weird things. Apparently this is what they alleged in the Mirage Man interview that the military was doing to cover up for the fact that they were just, you know, testing for this underground nukes and, and, and they didn't want, you know, people to know about the radiation and what was really going on. And it's all a big cover story for, um, nuclear tests and, and, uh, and medical examinations of farm animals that they didn't want to just buy and pay for. Um, it seems kind of crazy and elaborate, you know, and a lot of people have pointed that out and stuff. Um, you know, and, you know, Linda Moulton Howe was the researcher that, you know, researched a lot of this. Bob, Bob Bigelow knew Linda Moulton Howe. I, I heard that they had dated for a while, but uh, people attacked me and said that was never confirmed. And his wife is, you know, about that. I don't know what the deal is because Robert Bigelow was married and stuff. So I don't know what the whole relationship with him and, and Linda Moulton Howe was. But for some reason, um, Bigelow decided to you know, pay Linda Moulton's house rent for, for five years um, so that she could investigate these cattle mutilations and um, get to the bottom of that. And of course, she, you know, concluded that it was aliens doing it. And, um, you know, that would have been perfect if it, if it was that plowshare narrative, but other people have pointed out some, you know, interesting things. That, yeah, maybe I, I agree. It would have been easier for them to create a front company and just buy out the cattle. You know, that mm -hmm. seems like a much more you know, draining the, I mean, there, there's like, they've, some of these farmers found their cows with the, all the blood drained out of yeah. them, like, like ridiculous Yeah, stacked on top of each other. It's interesting. Cause I, I, I've, I've talked to a, a couple, uh, one of, one of the guys I met out in Colorado when I lived there was Chuck Zukowski and he's, uh, he's got the license plate UFO nut for Colorado <laughs> and he's investigated. He's a police officer actually. He's like law enforcement training and he did a number of these cattle mutilation investigations out there and, and he's got some interesting views on that stuff too. And, um, you know, again, it seems plausible that if I was an alien visiting here that I would take genetic samples from, you know, what are they eating? Oh, they eat these things. Let's see what they're made out of. You know, it just makes sense that they, you know, if aliens came here, they would collect those kinds of things and take data, you know, they would take, you know, they would harvest organs and harvest, you know, you know, they look at we eat cows. What are they right. made of? What, what's going on with these people? You know, it just seems like something that aliens would do. So, you know, again, it's one of those things that, that kind of confuses and baffles me uh, as well. Cause you know, you can, you can come up with these skeptical, plausible ex alternative explanations for things, but then, you know, those kind of seem a little bit outlandish in, in and of themselves too. Sometimes, you know, when you consider the other things that they've done to cover up stuff, it's quite easy to create a front company and buy a bunch of cows, you know, mm -hmm. like, and, and not have to create this whole elaborate scheme. But then again, when you have uh, someone like Linda out there creating it for you, again, I pointed out that that's the easiest way to do disinformation is to find someone else who's already confused or misinformed and just prop them up and let them promulgate 
it. And you'll find very often that, you know, organic misinformation works the best because it's what people already believe. And that's one of the reasons I think Skinwalker Ranch was chosen as a location uh, for, for, for some of this stuff because of all the legends that it was this place that's haunted and, you know, a, habitated by spirits, you know, these stories from the Native Americans about the place. But it's interesting because a lot of the stuff that seems to be going on out there um, sounds like some of this electronic warfare technology, like the spoofing technology, the laser holograms or the voice in the ear, or, you know, some of the stuff that these people have seen out there sounds a lot like some of these technologies to me anyways, is my skeptical, rational explanation of trying to, you know, come up with explanations for this stuff. And it reminds me of this place. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Camp Hero before. Yes, I have heard of that. I don't remember. So Camp Hero was this um, facility out on the end of Montauk Island. And Montauk is Long Island, New York. Right. So right on the tip of, of Long Island is Camp Hero. You can look this up. And there's this radar station and there's this whole military facility that was out there. And do you remember, you watch Stranger Things? Yes. So episode one, you remember like uh, the first season of Stranger Things? Season one, sorry. The first season of Stranger Things, they have that facility out on the end of the island. It's out and, and the government runs it and it's this mm -hmm. whole setup out there. Yeah, where they have the, where they have like that that hole that goes into the upside down. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And, okay. and they're doing all this research out there into this crazy weird stuff. Mm -hmm. That's and based all Russians. That's based on Montauk. That's based on Camp Hero. The real story, it's based on a real story of the research that went on out on the end of Long Island and the rumors that would go on around people who lived near there because, you know, you'd take a ride at night and stuff and go down the island and realize, oh, there's a military base and I can't get down there. And what the heck are they doing out there? And, and there's weird stuff going on because they have this really large high power radar tower that was set up out there that could that could do a lot of interesting things. Um, and this is right around the time they were researching Project Rainbow and doing a lot of the EMF response technology. So that there's a whole nother subsection of that, I believe, that was handled under MKUltra, where they were specifically looking for EMF responses in biological systems. So they're looking for signals that can affect biology. So and and if you look this up, you can actually if you go to icnirp.org. Okay, there's a whole organization, um, icnirp.org. And uh, there's a whole organization that does research into radiation and harmful effects. Okay. And you look at the ER, yeah, so the RF EMF guidelines. So there's a whole report that they publish every year. This report is very interesting because you, you can get this. It's, it's a couple hundred pages. The bibliography of this report is, is key if you want to research this kind of stuff because in that bibliography of that report, you're going to find every single study that's ever been done on frequencies that interact with biological systems, the, the bad frequencies that fuck up your biology, basically. And there's a lot of them, apparently. You know, you get the right frequency, the right amplitude, you can do things in, in the human body. And they're different for different people because we all have different geom bio, bio geometrics and, and stuff. Right. So the resonant frequency might be a little bit different for your pituitary gland than it is for mine because your yours might be a little bit different shape or, or size. So they have to tune these things specifically. But I believe that, you know, if they did an EMF project with Project Rainbow, 
to study all the EMF responses and the of materials and different arrangements of materials. And they had to have done one with biological systems. And MKUltra, again, pro, sub, there's a lot of sub-projects. There was over 100-something, 68, uh, maybe 100-something sub-projects of MKUltra. Mm -hmm. And um, in it, you'll find one of them where they, they looked into some of this stuff, they, these, these frequencies that would... Um, interact with biological organisms. And I think that that's the research that they started out on Camp Hero in Montauk, Virginia. And then they needed a place to move this research, um, you know, because rumors were going around and other things were, you know, it was just causing too much problems where it was. So they needed to look for a new home for that. And if I were, you know, doing electronics warfare and that kind of research and I needed a new home for something like that, Skinwalker Ranch would be my number one choice. Do you know why? Why? Because everything could be blamed on all the legends and all the paranormal stuff that, that has the history of it. So I could- Yeah, but what year are we talking again? What what year are we talking when all this stuff was going on? Project Rainbow and Camp Hero? That was like- MK Project Ultra Rainbow like started in 58. 58. Right, 58. And then, so throughout the 60s, maybe the 70s is when they shut down Camp Hero. So there's maybe a little bit of gap- period of time when from when skinwalker ranch was uh first you know bigelow bought it first and started running some of this stuff and he, he brought in nids and, and some of these other teams yeah. to, to run these investigations and i think that you know bigelow working with these aerospace defense contracts working close to you know with bigelow aerospace trying to get into this stuff may have been involved in in some of some of this uh research or contracts and stuff. That's mm. my theory on, on Skinwalker Ranch is that it, it was Camp Hero 2.0, that they chose it as a, a place because of the paranormal history to, to run these experiments so that they, you know, if anything got uncovered or got loose, they could just be like, well, it's ghosts and dino beavers and poltergeists and, and stuff. And they could also use that to mix in a lot of the, I don't know, it just seems like a lot of counterintelligence because to me, because I can't, I can't make sense of it any other way. Well, it's like the number one show on History Channel now. So you think they're still <laughs> doing it there? I don't... <laughs> number one show on the History Probably. Channel? Probably. Oh, Jesus. Probably. I, I'm surprised. I'm, you know, it. nothing surprises me anymore. But again, I have not watched a single episode and I wait... I've watched a couple and I could, I could barely get through one. It yeah, was so it cringe. It is so hard to get... It's so... I watched a couple I mean, of the technical explanations with, you know, Travis Taylor is their lead scientist. And again, this is a guy who he's got a history of research with all this laser technology and laser induced plasma technology. He's got patent, you know, he's got papers written on this. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of research on this stuff. So he's connected. He's one of the guys that is connected to this stuff. So that makes me suspicious of the whole thing. I don't know how I, I talked about this before when I had James Fox on here. I, I told him that I think shows like that do this subject a discredit. I do too. I believe they do. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't have started my podcast if it weren't for shows like what I what, what I would watch. One of the ones I've, I watched was Michio Kaku back in like the early 2000s. He did this one where, of like the UF, would the government recover a saucer and what would the technologies be that would be on it? And he talked about metamaterial. You no, know, he talked about invisibility cloaks, but he never mentioned metamaterials. And I was like, come on, man. You're not like... How can you be a scientist, like this top theoretical physicist and scientist talking about these things, but not know about what's out there in the literature, what's already out there? Like, why are you not talking about this and this and this He's and this? He's got a new book coming out about quantum 
yeah quantum entanglement what's it what's his new what's his new book google michio kaku's next out. new book i'll have to check that out man because you know kaku's interesting he's done a 180 on the ufo topic but i really didn't like his stance and in the, in the, what he said about the ufo topic you know he, he like now the burden of proof has shifted you know he said like oh it used to be on us to prove that these things you know weren't but now we have to prove that these aren't real and like no that's nothing to do with what's going on right now Hmm. It, I, I just felt like I don't quantum know. Quantum supremacy, don't... how the quantum computer revolution will change everything. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Kaku would be super. I would love to have a sit down conversation with him where we could just get into it, you know, on some of the stuff, man, because that, that would that would get super deep quick. If we could put a panel together with like Kaku, Weinstein, Bob Lazar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bob Lazar's gotta be on there. I don't I guarantee you, and I'll bet you anything he is like he, he will not be on Joe Rogan ever again. I uh, you can mark my words and I'll and I'll bet you I'll I, I'll make a bet with you that he will not debate Weinstein and he will not go on Joe Rogan again. I don't think he's gonna I think he's gonna fade out of the public domain. You know, mm -hmm. he just moved, he, he moved United Nuclear from Michigan to Oregon. He's got a new setup out there. He's got an 11 acre horse farm that he lives on with his wife out there now. And I think he's just going to retire and, and, and say, forget all of this. I, I, I guarantee you, I, I just don't see it happening, bro. <laughs> as much as I would love to see that and it would be awesome. Yeah. My prediction right now is that he's going to fade out. And, and he's just gonna he's just gonna drop out altogether. That's my prediction, anyway. What is, what is the biggest pushback that you get on this shit? Obviously, you have a lot of critics, and you have a lot of people attacking you for your positions on all this stuff. What what I mean, some people consider you a quote unquote skeptic, but like, what is the most prevalent pushback that you get? Well, I mean, I'm on Twitter a lot, so UFO Twitter is just notorious with these defenders of TTSA and when I, I I spoke out about TTSA and and some of my criticisms of them early on it was they, TTSA so TTSA was to the stars academy like, oh. and, and that was Tom DeLong and you know Chris Mellon Lou Elizondo and there was a CIA guy um, Jim Semivan Semivan yeah 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 hell put off uh, a number of these other guys that all came forward and said that they were going to release they were going to build a spaceship for us if we funded it and they were going to release free energy and anti-gravity technology and that was all in their like first press conference thing and mm -hmm. you know i had been researching anti-gravity for you know 10 years at that point and i was like <laughs> there is no effing way and i i was super you know vocal about that i even started my own company to try to you know compete with them for you know who's going to make the real anti-gravity technology and who's going to release more you know real information about it and i was just criticizing everything that they put out because they were they weren't talking about any physics any real technology they were just making promises they didn't even have a science division they end up shutting down the science division after they started and just focusing purely on the entertainment division mm. and i was just like i predicted it all right from the start and i you know i called it out and and but I had tons of people just giving me all this backlash and then my questions about, you know, these guys and their credibility and what they're doing in ufology and do we need them? Are they helping? Yeah, they got a New York Times article. They got a bunch of attention to the subject. But what if the purpose was all to create a bunch of smoke and mirrors and then have it all get a ton of attention and then debunk it? You know, that would be like 
what I would do if I was the Pentagon and I wanted to run a psyop and get rid of all this stuff, I would, you know, hire a bunch of guys, pump it up, hype it up, hype up a whole bunch of fake crap for as long as I could. And then just until everyone got tired or burnt out or, or, or I debunked it all. And, you know, and I really feel like the, 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 when they pulled the plug full, fully was Super Bowl weekend with those, those three UFOs that were shot down in the same weekend. And they were just like, it's Chinese spy balloons. Right. And that was just like, Roswell, you know, 1997 U.S. Air Force all over again. Um, yes. was interesting about <clears throat> the U.S. Air Force um, in 1997, they had the whole, you know, they, they, they released a new report on Roswell and they did this public press conference. And the opening line of that press conference, the first thing that the DOD says is, wow, look at all the people here. If only we could get this many people to, you know, pay attention to aerospace defense, um, you know, We'd be, we'd be doing something, you know, productive here, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like that right there was like, they must've realized, wow, this way too much, you know, we, we're not going to fight this. We have, you can't beat them. You have to join them. You know what I mean? At that point, they must've realized that you cannot, you cannot like your denials are just creating more contra, you know, when they came out with that report and, the, and then a year later after that report, Corso publishes book the day after Roswell, um, I almost felt like that was dis misinformation or disinformation as well put out by the Air Force because like the, the timing of it was just too um, too close. And then the technologies that Corso mentioned were none of the real technologies. And it was all technologies that had I found were had traceable sources to, you know, human inventors and human scientists who built and worked on these things. Mm. Some of the other stuff is... is 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 I've traced it to humans too, like the invisibility stuff and the metamaterials. It goes back to Project Rainbow and all that the classified stuff they were working on and different, you know, EMF responses that they were observing and things. So there's a lot of this that's just you think it's aliens because it seems like it came from nowhere. But it really came from these, you know, classified programs or these scientists who worked on it for their entire life. And even if it wasn't classified, it's just obscurity. So it's a scientist that worked on it and just nobody knows about it except, you know, very, very few people. So, mm. yeah, one of the, I think one of the m most impactful things, one of the most impactful quotes from your conversation with Eric was when you were talking about disclosure, when it right. comes to like New York Times and looking to like the biggest irony in this whole disclosure movement is that we deeply distrust we deeply distrust authority while simultaneously looking at authority for verification of all this stuff yeah yeah absolutely you know yeah that's a that was that's a good point because <clears throat> that just brings it all all full circles because like who do you trust at the end of the day and the only thing i trust is what i can verify you know with my own you know, research or exper either experiment or evidence or, mm -hmm. or something. And, you know, some of the stuff is, is you just have to like accept it as a mystery and maybe you're never going to get to the bottom of it. And some of it you have to, um, you know, think about outside the box that other pe other researchers before you haven't approached this, pro this topic or this problem the same way and haven't come up with the right solution. Sometimes you do. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you're looking at a UFO video and you're like, dude, you... you we looked at a UFO video. We finally like tracked it down to where, where the location was taken. And then we noticed that there's mountains in the backgrounds with all these, you know, motocross trails. So it's what we're at. They were actually filming were um, dirt bikes going down the mountain on the motocross trails. And it looks like UFOs in the video. Mm. This is like all kinds of cases like that, where you just have to 
step outside and get a different, a little bit different way of thinking about things or a perspective. And then instantly things make sense. Right. Yeah. What do you know about that guy, Malcolm Bendall, who has been working with Randall Carlson for the past year on this plasma technology? I haven't seen any of his like actual technology or his lab. I heard he's got a lab like in Malaysia somewhere and doing yeah. kind of tests and like experiments and stuff. I, I haven't got, you know, I, I contacted him on Twitter and tried to get like a little bit more in with him and see, but he didn't seem real vocal or open with me, you know, and I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing. Um, sometimes, you know, if, if you got something to hide, you definitely don't want to talk to theoretical physicists and, and scientists because if you're if you're pulling a trying to pull a front, then you're going to get found out real quick. You know right. I mean? So um, that's the same the same thing I tell people who criticize Gary Nolan, you know, people like, oh, he worked for the CIA and the CIA recruited him to study these brain, you know, injury victims to, to understand Havana syndrome. And that's how he got into all this. So you can't trust him because he worked for the CIA. But he's a scientist, and I don't. I I, I think that more science. We need more scientists in this field. Mm -hmm. We need more science uh, scientists studying this. Mm -hmm. I think the more scientists, the better. And if he is a disinformation agent and he's trying to spread, you know, misinfo to the scientific community, good luck. <laughs> right. <know? laughs> well, it's like it's another. It's just another example of of people like yourself, people like you know, you're very similar in your field of physics to. Ben Van Kerwick is to like this guy, he has a YouTube channel and he studies all this ancient high technology evidence in, in Egypt where the yeah. pyramids are. Like he has, he has finds all this evidence of these precision, uh, core drills and these yeah. precision saw cuts and these basalt stones. Yeah. And so he they like, had to have iron. Yeah. Right. Like, bits and, and during like the time that. where they say the pyramids were built, they had literally like stone tools and, and, iron chisels right and they, there's no way they could have copper chisels co yeah that's what i meant copper chisels right yeah and there's no way they could have created age, these yep. perfectly symmetrical perfectly square yeah 80 ton bricks of of i forget what the stone is like basalt rock it's like on the most scale of hardness they're like some of the hardest rocks that exist that's another thing right so if you we're an ancient civilization and, and say you did create a blast furnace and and, and develop iron smelting and forging technology ahead of you know everyone else wouldn't you keep it classified wouldn't that be like a cla a highly classified military secret that would be like you know it to ancient egypt you know figuring out iron smelting technology would be the equivalent of you know our hypersonic missiles you you wouldn't share that with your anyone you know you wouldn't share it with even your you know mm. your citizens so it's easy to see how technologies like that could have gotten lost over time like could have been discovered and then right. lost you yes know. yeah so, i mean there's been there's been um, greek fire there's evidence of cataclysms of, of massive floods of comet comet impacts that created global cataclysms that wiped out civilizations and there are extinction level events and yeah. you know what modern academia says is that the Egyptians 2,500 years ago, 2,500 years ago, they built the pyramids and they created everything that's, that you see there today. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> with all the evidence of the technology they had, it's not possible. They were the ones that were drawing, that were carving those hieroglyphs with copper chisel, copper chisels into the sides of those giant basalt obelisks. Yeah. They weren't the ones that were actually moving those massive 
20, they didn't 30, make 80 them. They, it's like we found them and we just did stuff to them. Exactly. You know, rather than we they were built like, them. It's and, the equivalent of like toddlers drawing with crayons on the side of a, yeah. a mausoleum. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to say that these giant pyramids were created to be tombs. I think that a lot of that stuff's super interesting. You know, there's a lot of cool, you know, Egypt research and a lot of unsolved mysteries there. But ba back to like specifically the Malcolm Bendall, uh, this Malcolm Bendall um, guy. I know that he he did some stuff on Twitter uh, with this periodic table that he created, where he like he he arranged it in a circle and said that there's some you know significance to that. And I made a video where I showed all the different periodic tables, including the real period, the the real full periodic table, which is the chart of isomers, and that includes like all the isotopes and um and, and all 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 like all the different you know, arrangements of isotopes and isomers. So, so like the, uh, the full, the full chart and, uh, mm. you know, that's like the full periodic table. That's like when Gary Nolan says, you know, our regular periodic table, we're working with like a, a you know, a hundred elements, but you know, in between those, there's all these isotopes of each element. So they're, they're working with like 250 in, in their building blocks and rather mm. than, you know, what we're working with and why they need those might be, you know, is a, is another issue of debate and, stuff that I can get into like for example uh they did um they took a different isotope or of lithium and replaced it with like the regular lith lithium and they found that like because of that isotope replaced basic functions in the brain that um weird things happened because of the isotope so there's there's functions in your brain that are clearly you know affected by these these spin relaxation times because that's the only thing that changes when you up the isotope is that that spin rel that that larmor frequency or, or larmor precession so there's quantum mechanical processes that occur inside the brain this has been proven with the with the with the lithium study in mice where they gave a, a, an isotope of lithium to the the mice and they they behaved much differently than the the ones with the normal lithium um so there's obviously something going on here um in, with with the physics and the and the science of of these isotopes that that create something uh some of these effects and it's again i think it's really it's definitely related to that spin relaxation time um uh, factor but i i think that uh malcolm's got some you know interesting ideas and i'd like to talk to him more and get him on the show and and really have if he's got real science i'm, I'm the place to do it man like come on my podcast like you you can you can talk to a whole bunch of people who ask you really good questions and and really like delve out your 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 ideas and uh get to the nuts and bolts if you've got something legit uh like it will be proven like i'll make sure like you know, we're not just gonna like fake debunk you and and make it and ridicule you and and send you off like we're going to give you everyone a fair shot and, and keep an open mind to stuff. And if you're wrong about certain things, we're going to point it out. And like your periodic table is not the full periodic table. And there's, there's other, there's other things in, in some of the stuff that he's put out where I'm just like, this looks like it's not the, it's not the real story. It's like an, it's like a, I don't know. Some of the stuff I've pointed out already with, with his stuff, but again, I, I haven't gotten the chance to speak with him directly or, or really look into his experimental work and research fully enough to get to that but just what i've seen of the theoretical basis stuff like the that periodic table of elements he had with the circle chart i mean i don't i, I think what is he claiming he's claiming that what he's discovered is a, a plausible explanation of how sound was able to manipulate 
massive objects and move some of these massive objects in Egypt and like build the pyramids potentially. So they have sonic levitation. They've, yeah. they've, they've built sonic levitators that, you know, they'll levitate a golf, like a, a styrofoam ball or something really lightweight. I've yet to see anyone levitate, you know, a silicone block or, or, or a sandstone block, you know, a piece of pyramid stone. I've let, yet to see that experiment done. You know, Nassim Harriman, a number of these other guys talk about how they've cracked the ancient Egypt, Egyptian technology. Well, just show me how to lift the stone. Show me how to lift lift the rock and how to do that. Right. Um, and I've heard lots of different theories and ideas on how it's done and, and how to do it. And, you know, this was scepter that the Egyptians had that had this, you know, it looked like a tuning fork on one end that they supposedly resonated at a certain frequency and that could, you know, get the stones vibrating that would cause them to levitate. And, well... Someone's got to figure, if the ancient Egyptians figured it out with their primitive technology, man, why can't we do it in, in some of the labs we have and figure this out? Why do we get like teams and, you know, real PhDs and other kinds of people working on this stuff and, and we haven't figured it out if it, mm. you know, it's just, so I'm skeptical. Well, that's what Ben, that's what Ben Van Kerwick points out. He says it wasn't the ancient Egyptians. It was a civilization much before them yes. uh, with, with much, much higher advanced technology and the ancient and the ancient egyptians simply inherited that stuff right it the was technology was gone the or, stuff. or new zealandia one of these ancient civilizations right. that structured and then they collapsed and everyone moved to egypt right. you know and, and then the you know people like randall and people like graham hancock that point all this stuff out they just get like discredited and called you know racist like graham hancock was called a racist for mm. some of the theories that he pointed out about ancient Egypt and the how the pyramids were constructed there's there's these uh, these yeah. these attempts to discredit right. them by labeling them on social media hmm. and portraying them as bad guys when right. really all they're doing is paying more attention than anyone else and it's just it goes against what modern academia and all the people that have I can sympathize with some of those people cuz they're like oh well, how could brown people have built the pyramids you know that that that's racist you know to think that it could They're in Africa been, you know? so the other thing I think is like the same thing I, I see with scientists you know, all the time is like I get I get pissed off because these scientists are not getting the credit and you're not getting the real education and not knowing the real knowledge and you're just saying giving aliens all the credit for stuff and not getting a good understanding of the science or anything that's going on because it was real scientists who worked and built the stuff like the transistor. Do you know who Walter Schottky was? If you don't, then you, you should look up, you know, what he did and his research and how it developed the solid state theory and group theory that led to uh what became the transistor of p-doped and n-doped uh you know silicates and stuff like that the, the, the science that went into it mm -hmm. and you don't get an appreciation for that and it's the same thing i look at with the pyramids man it's like you're you're taking all this credit away from humans who humans have done some amazing and, and just a miraculous just awesome things and you're giving all that credit to something else or aliens or, you know, some advanced technology in a civilization. Maybe we're not thinking hard enough. Maybe we're not. I don't know. It, it, I, I yet to also see on the other side is anyone who's been able to show how you can lift stones and do all this with primitive technology and do it. I like the idea that the, the grand gallery being this cog mechanism where they walk the stones up this, the, the grand gallery, whether it was a ramp where they actually 
you know, drag the stones up for right, the final right. construction project. There's lots of cool theories on how they built the pyramids. I love that guy. Have you ever seen that guy that does all the concrete buckets? He moves all these super heavy objects by finding the center of mass and then balancing the, the object on that center of mass and then just rotating it or, or spinning it different ways or just, you know, rocking it back and forth and putting, you know, lifting uh, a little bit of, you lift this side, put a stick under, tip it back this way, put a stick under, lift it back this way, put a stick under. You can jack up like huge mega megaliths. Um, oh no, I haven't seen that. What is this called? Uh, look up like um, man shows how the pyramids were built or, or man moves heavy, enormous objects by himself. I think it is. Uh, there's some guy that he was fascinated by how they built the pyramids and he started- Is this the guy from Florida? I think he, no, that was Edward Leed Scallon and down in Homestead, Florida. Yes, in Homestead, the coral. The Coral Castle. Coral Castle, yeah. Um, yeah, this dude moves 20-ton 20, 20 blocks by hand. That guy, yeah. Yeah, without machinery, he shows how to do it. A couple of these things he builds and shows are... I thought that was, you know, super interesting. And in, in, in because if you deal with just the physics of it, man, like some of the stuff's not that crazy. You know, you could build one of these ramp systems. Look how he pushes this enormous stone by himself. Like you get a... You get a Whoa, what is he using right here? What is that? He balances it on a pebble and then he he's put it he he's big concrete block and he's put leverage on it. So he cares about moving blocks around. But then when you look at the the magnitude of the weights that he's moving around, it is it is really impressive and he's not using any equipment or anything. In playing with blocks, Wally thinks he's discovered how Stonehenge was moved. This is my first Stonehenge arch I permanently put in place. Uh three blocks, they weigh over a ton each. It's all based on a very simple technique. I found a simple explanation for this, uh, to move a block about the weight of a minivan, would be to place a stone underneath it. And once I balance on it, I can spin it. Holy shit. Yeah, it's all about that center of mass and the balance. But I got two handles on my lever, and I could place another stone on this side. Now, every time I spin a half rotation, on each stone, I move the block horizontally the distance between the stones. For my own output, I could move a uh, one-ton block 300 feet per hour. Using this technique, wow. he's moved everything from one-ton blocks to buildings. Look at that. Here's how it's so he's tipping it with weight. He's raising it off the ground six inches at a time by placing a wedge under each, underneath each end. And that's going to put the entire weight of the block on this rope. So then I'm going to release the rope, come back in, and the rope's going to be my break. I'm going to guide it into the pit. The easiest way I can explain this is the, this is just a big teeter-totter, and I got the big kid on that end, and he's going to go down, and this end's going up. So each time he does the teeter-totter, he places another wedge underneath. One day I got thrown over top of a block, and a couple times I had the blocks roll off the top and almost land on my feet. One That's pretty wild. But still, even with this kind of technology, I mean, imagine how long it would take him to build the fucking pyramids. I think there's like a, a mathematical equation that was done based on like modern technology and how much each of those blocks in the pyramids weighs. It's like 2 million blocks that weigh what? Like 5 to 10 tons each? Yeah. It would take like, how long would it take? Maybe a place like one stone every, you know, like you'd have to place... I think like 2,000 stones an hour to do it. And I don't know. I, let's do some math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine, fine. Like, Google, yeah. how long How long would it take to build the... How many blocks would you have to move per day to build the pyramids? 
So it's two million blocks. I feel like. two million. Two, yeah, two million. So if you had two million divided by seven thousand three hundred, that means you'd have to stack two hundred and seventy-four blocks every day. Two hundred and seventy-four blocks. So that's to do it in how many years? It's twenty years. Twenty years. <sighs> that's not using what that guy was doing. That's not using Man, wooden yeah, wedges. To, like a lot of people doing a it. A lot maybe. of people, right? 20,000. It's bizarre, man. man. I don't know. It, it would be it would be cool to do some more experience with it, but like a, yeah. as they, as a lot of people pointed out, like you couldn't hire a contractor today to build the pyramids. And right. It would cost so much yeah, the, the amount of to cut. Google a picture of of one of those giant obelisks that uh on on just type type, type uh, in yeah. uncharted x um, the one that they started excavating that cracked and they, and they stopped. Didn't... Yep. Yeah. Obelisk. O B Y L. It's like a hundred tons or something. So yeah, it's insane. It. Yeah. But it's like cut with perfect precision, and they get them inside of these pyramids too. Mm. Yeah. Look at that one. Look at that one on the very top. Top. No, yeah, uh, that one right there. That, that one right there. Yeah. Too. That's it too. Thing is insane. You're not doing that with copper chisels. Nah, and in fact, you need like some kind of like rigged machinery to right. keep it that straight. Like you'd have to have things on a, on like a line going back and forth. Mm -hmm. Even set up like autom automated, you know, cutting systems. Like like Ed Lead Scallon apparently had that at Coral Castle. Like he had this this tower with um the electrical signals they would put through, like he had all this stuff on the walls and people pointed out that those are actuators. You, you know, like you have this electromagnet and you put something inside of it. You can have like a whole, like a saw system on, on automated, like running by power that would just, you know, cut, cut blocks. You know, you can have mm. a bit, the way he cut the blocks at coral, he, he's cutting coral. So it's a big coral bed and coral is a really soft stone. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to cut. So the way he would do it is he took like a big heavy steel door and and just rubbed it back and forth and right. that would cut that would cut through it over time so like that's kind of like the method he used mm -hmm. but they said that he set up those steel doors on like these actuators and that's what that that flywheel was like a, a ge electromagnetic generator mm. and that it would create current and this guy rebuilt like a whole um if you look up coral castle mystery solved this guy like did a whole bunch of experiments where he showed like how he'd build like this coral cutting automation system using these actuators that were very similar to all the stuff in, in Lid Scallon's shop. And, um, you know, said that he used like a, a system of um, cranes and, and chain hoists and other, other right. lifting techniques to be able to lift the stones and, and position them and put them into place. Mm -hmm. But that ultimately it was, uh, there was no anti-gravity technology involved in the whole magnetic current book doesn't really make much sense. I've, right. I've, I've looked at that and his whole, you know, this whole idea that, you know, he was using magnetic current to somehow, you know, lift the stones. Mm. Um, we've had a lot of people look into this, any kind of potential um, coupling between electromagnetism and gravity. And there doesn't seem to be one, you know, it doesn't seem to be like mm. ele electrogravitic seems to be a misnomer. It's ion wind and all the, it doesn't work in a vacuum, for example. And, um, you know, how do you lift physical objects, non-magnetic objects with magnets? It's No one's been able to do it. So how do you, you know, what is gravity? Nobody knows, man. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery. So 
I don't even know how to end a podcast like this, but you already missed your flight. We're like almost four hours in. What we're three and a half hours in. Yeah. Is there anything we missed that oh, we should geez, cover? This is 1020. Oh, <laughs> Look at that. There it is, is there the any? Is go. there anything we've covered a shitload? But is we covered a ton. Is of there stuff, anything man, important that we missed? Great. I, I, I think we, we nailed enough stuff to keep people busy for the next, you know, couple of weeks. Um, yeah, all, all I really want to say is we have a lab down that we're trying to do these experiments and replicate these experiments. And we're encouraging people who have information or prototypes or anything they need tested or verified. You know, we're, we're trying to encourage and foster this community to do that and be that, uh, be the pioneers or leaders in this field to try to, if this technology does exist, you know, if Bob Lazar did work out there for real, then he, there's got to be other people. There's got to be other guys that were recruited into this program or other programs similar mm -hmm. to this. And if there are, we want to talk to them. We want to talk to them in great detail and deep detail and make sure that we're getting, you know, the, all the technical intelligence that we can extract from these people. And if we can't extract any, then we're, I'm trying to, you know, show people where they can get real technical intelligence and, and why they, they shouldn't look at certain sources if they're not reliable, you know? So. What do you think it would mean for humanity if our government just came clean and said, yes, it's true. Bob Lazar was telling the truth. Those flying saucers were real. We found them in archaeological, easy for you to say, archaeological dig. And we found them, we reverse engineered them. We don't know what it is from another planet. And like all this stuff was just, made transparent like what do you think that would mean for the for science humanity and like the evolution of our species i think i think the truth would honestly be like the best thing for us I, I, it's almost like although i don't know because it, it it could i don't know what that technology contains or what that file might contain so it might contain something like really bad there may be a reason they're they're keeping it you know out of you know everyone's you know the public domain. I mean, it might be a reason for that, but at the same time, it's like, where is humanity going? You know, where are we going right now? Are we, are we going to, we either have to get off this planet or, or we're going to, and if we don't get off this planet, then we're eventually going to die here. Like we're either going to nuke ourselves, kill ourselves, or an asteroid's going to wipe us out entirely. Mm -hmm. So if we don't colonize the moon, colonize Mars and do these other things that, you know, Elon, Elon's super, you know, invested in this as, as his mission his company mission you know how do we get to mars how do we colonize mars and, and, and create a mars colony and all this that should be our ultimate goal as to become a spacefaring civilization and to get off this earth so it's either we go that direction or we we go backwards and we say screw technology we're gonna we're just gonna shut all technology down and we're gonna go back to you know rural serfdoms and foreign and, 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 uh, you know, and that's never going to happen. So where do we go from here? There's how many options do we have? We either, we either leave the planet, become spacefaring and become, you know, a post-warp civilization or we die here. I don't think there's any other. It seems so fucking mind boggling that we we're still flying around on the same fucking airplanes. We were back in what the 50, how long ago did we, Figure out commercial airplane travel. Was it night? Well, commercial plane travel probably like night. 
19 early 1930s 1940s how is it we're still flying on the same planes we were flying in the 1930s or 40s it seems like just modern technology has not evolved yeah we were working on anti-gravity in the 50s what the fuck we're i mean you could you could make an argument like electric cars like we're we got computers on wheels powered by batteries but like like eric said you know if you look past screens really nothing else is has really changed yeah, as far as energy production, mm-hmm. and you know, we're still using turbines powered by steam, and that's that steam is either generated by, you know, nuclear heat or uh, burning coal, burning fossil right. fuels, burning old dinosaur bones. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I don't know. We need to get uh, get off and curb our addiction to fossil fuels and find um, better energy sources. Um, what those are going to be in the future is you know. A de- is, a, is definitely an issue still up for debate and stuff mm-hmm. but uh as far as we as this ufo issue is concerned i just think that the, it's created this state of uh ultimate secrecy you know surrounding this topic and a lot of other topics i think that that didn't necessarily create the state it's almost like that emerged from the manhattan project which was created you know out of this whole thing it, it, it seems like it seems like it started with this whole top secret research project in the Manhattan Project, you know, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, where did it go from there? The aliens started showing up after we blew these nukes off, and right. the Atomic Energy Commission and everything is has been, you know, deeply tied to this Men in Black and this conspiracy to keep stuff covered up and and whatnot for for years. Um, I think that there's there's definitely more more to it. Um. But as far as, you know, where we're going to go with it, it's, it's got to be through the technology because I don't think the tech, I, I don't see that ever happening, that the government's going to come forward and be like, right. we're going to admit to anything. Because when does that ever happen? And then if they do, it's like, it's automatically caused to not believe whatever they said. It's like, right. so so I, I don't think that that's how it's going to go. I really, that's why, that's why we started the APEC conference and the, and the, and the, the, all propulsion and Falcon space labs. Cause we, we want to create this environment where like, well, we're going to force disclosure through technology. So like, you know, if the technology exists, all we have to do is, is show, show other people how to do it with an experiment. You know, you got these, these, these awesome YouTube channels out there that, that um, like uh, that will take this and do an experiment with it and show people how to do it. And then like other people, once, once it's, once we put a video out there with an experiment and all the details and the recipe for how to recreate it, then, you know, other, other scientists and other labs and other people can go out and, and produce it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that that would be the best, man. If we could create like a free energy or an anti-gravity and then just show people like, well, this is how you build it. This is how you do it. Um, I think that that's the way forward. And, and, and also the physics too, because we go over, we go over the physics and we get into the, in the physics and we get in these arguments with other physicists about what's the way to do this and how do we do it? And, and well, this will work, this won't. And, and, um, coming up with those better ideas is, is the way we're going to get through this and we're going to, you know, eliminate the noise and, and get to that, um, that signal we're chasing after, man, because mm. that's what it seems like is that there's a very faint signal and there's lots of noise and lots of muddy mud in the water to to prevent us from seeing clearly through to the bottom well i i hope i can i'm trying to do everything i can to amplify that signal um 
how Dude. can people get in touch with you, watch more of your videos? What kind of what kind of interviews are you doing? Who are you? What kind of people are you talking to on your on your show? I'd love to talk to Malcolm. Like I want to talk to anyone that wants to talk science. Like because because mm. I, I get real deep on science and, and technical. So I want to talk to people that want to talk science and want to talk it with people on a more um intellectual level than than you know normal, you know. Sometimes we, we break it down to the, I like to come on podcasts like this and, and, and try to explain this really complex technology at a layman level so that more people can learn about it and know about it. But at the same time, I want to work with those scientists at that next level to try to produce it and then, and then know how to share that information mm -hmm. and, and, and whatnot with everyone. So yeah, it, it's, I think it's only the start. And I think that uh, what we're going to be doing in the next you know, 10 to 20 years, um, as far as this technology and, 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 and this field, I think it, we're going to see some pretty amazing stuff. Like you've already seen some really cool shit on the, yeah. today. So one thing I forgot to ask you about actually, how put off we didn't, we didn't talk about him. Yeah. We talked about him briefly off the podcast and you kind of blew my, my mind a little bit. Hal's interesting. He got, I don't know where he like started with all this, but I know he like was an SRI international. It's the Stanford research Institute. And they were like, uh, not really affiliated with Stanford, but, uh, I think it was like a CIA run organization or something that did a lot of research into weird and paranormal stuff. They, they were, you know, investigating Yuri Geller at one point in time. Then he was also in, if you read the Jim Mars book, Psy Spies, about the whole men who stare at goats was based on that whole story. And um, this Army Psychological Warfare Operations Center that they had set up and they were running experiments with, you know, mind control, all the remote viewing stuff. Again, I don't think there's any evidence for remote viewing. Uh, I don't believe in remote viewing. I think it's... Um, I think it was put out a study that was done by the CIA into the possibility of whether this worked or not. I think it failed. And, uh, when they, some other documents leaked or someone found out about it, they put out some other studies like that project Stargate stuff, you know, to suggest that it was real and that the CIA confirmed that, you know, it did exist and that they use it and it was, it was real and all this stuff. And I think I laugh at that, you know, people are like, oh, how can, how can the CIA confirm that, you know, we have remote viewing and people still not be paying attention. I was like, well, it's kind of like, you know, when all those CIA directors and stuff stepped up to confirm that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, right? like <laughs> they're full of shit, you know, like, right. like no one believes them. Like, yeah, of course the, the CIA is going to tell people we can read their fucking minds. They want everyone to think that we can read their fucking minds because then they, they'll be we don't have to worry about thought criminals and thought control. They're, they'll do it themselves. If we, they think we can read their fucking minds, you know what I mean? Right. So, um, I, of course the CIA is going to tell people, yeah, we got remote viewing and we can, we have, we have super soldiers with superpowers that can like see inside, you know, your every detail of everything. Yeah. Mm. Of course they want the Russians and everyone else to think that we have this, these kind of capabilities, but do we actually have them? Is there any evidence that we've changed our, you know, the way we train CIA agents? Are we still, training them intelligence collection methods of the, the typical way or are we just abandoning right. that and now only training remote viewers because if it worked that well and it was that great and that accurate then that's all we'd be doing you know mm -hmm. <laughs> we wouldn't even we wouldn't worry about you know hiring espionage and 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 
hack, you know, people that hack sources and, and these prostitutes that, that, that go and sleep with people in, for, for secrets and stuff like that. We wouldn't have to do any of that if we could just, you know, use super powered super soldiers to look in people's minds. And of course, right. so that's my whole take on that. I don't, I don't believe, I don't buy in it for a second. And I think that they did a lot of research in, in, in it just to see if it was real or not. And then afterwards, of course, that, you know, they're going to say that it was real because why not? And Hal used to be a Scientologist too, didn't he? Yeah, he was. In, he was big into Scientology too. Um, he, he's an interesting guy, but he also like the, some of the stuff from the '80s and '90s is is interesting because he talks about a major breakthrough that happened around 1984-85. And um, in one of these interviews where he's, where he's talking about the polarizable vacuum, one of the early ones from the '90s, he's talking about the first stuff on that polarizable vacuum theory of general relativity. So it's a it's a way of Saying, well, relativity only works if, uh, you know, the, the speed of light is only the speed of light because of the permittivity and permeability of free space, these two magnetic and, and, and electric uh, constants that govern space time. And if we can locally affect those, then we might be able to change the speed of light and therefore change the laws of, you know, relativity, um, at least locally or in other ways. So that's this whole idea that they can polarize the vacuum was one way they thought about doing it. Again, that's that's what I'm talking about with these polariton condensates, these condensates mm -hmm. that they're polarizing the vacuum with. And, um, you know, when you keep this polarizable vacuum approach, you change the local uh, refractive and index of space time. And much like we're warping, you know, the mirage effect warped that uh, fo the photons and, and light energy around objects, we could potentially warp gravity around objects um, by using a similar, a similar method, methodology or similar physics. And that's you know, put off greatest, you know, work that I've seen in, in the field is, is that stuff he put out. And, um, I'm not sure, not sure if that was entirely 100%, you know, him and his ideas, because it seems like a lot of that stuff, you know, Bernard, he, he, he publishes a lot with some of these other authors like Bernard Haish, the Caltech, uh, senior staff physicist from Lockheed Martin, who, right. I, who I mentioned, you know, he wrote a lot of papers with Hal put off. And I think that they shared a lot of research and ideas on inertia and the zero point energy field and, and how gravity and mass and inertia come to be from the quantum vacuum. And um, yeah, I think that some of his, his, his research into that is, is super uh, deep and fascinating. But I also think that, you know, like, why isn't he talking more about that? He'd mentioned that metamaterial and some of the, the, the aspects about that, but that's about as far as, you know, he went with TTSA and the science division is, is and it, as far as, has they declassified this? It's like, he doesn't even talk about it. He's never interviewed or really gotten deep into it. Even that, you know, I watched the one he did with Eric Weinstein yes, on Michael, Jesse Michael's yeah. channel and stuff. And even that, I'm like, man, you know, like they could get so much, deeper on this and they did eric was being very polite with him during that interview i mean he was asking him about like is there is there an operation designed to wield stigma yeah that was a great interview man i just like that's that's those are the conversations i i really really like and i would love to have been a part of it or got to ask some of my own questions and, and got in there because that's just yeah i wish how put off would would talk to more people like me at least and do that more publicly mm. and, and stuff that would be cool because um and that 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 light experiment he was talking about in the 80s that breakthrough was uh squeezed light you know they, they squeeze light and that's what they use in LIGO for the detectors to detect gravity gravity waves in LIGO and uh one of the theories in physics is that if you can build a detector you can build a transmitter 
So that maybe the transmission and, and the uh, signals might have something to do with this, the, these squeezed lights or these squeezed coherent states. Mm. And I pointed out, what, what is a squeezed state? Well, it's um, you take Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and then you squeeze one of the parameters. So like you can only know the position or the momentum of an object quantum mechanically to within a degree of h bar over two pi, this quantum limit um, of, of, of what actuality is. So if you were, were to squeeze one of those parameters, like say the, the position or the momentum, the other one will jump instantaneously to conserve this Heisenberg right. uncertainty relation. So you could potentially create instantaneous, you know, spikes in momentum if you, if you squeeze that position state or or changes in its position if you squeeze its momentum state in the right way. And so there might be some, you know, deeper quantum mechanics involved in that, that um, is related to this, these polariton, con these, again, these light, these trapped systems of light and how we can squeeze those systems of light to get them to, you know, to do things physically that, that they, you know, ordinarily wouldn't. Mm. Um, and I think that's a lot of interesting physics there. And I'm hoping that, you know, the next breakthrough happens uh, in my lifetime that I get to see it and that, uh, you know, maybe someone who is part of it is got, got into the research because they heard about it, you know, through, through this, you know, cause it's out there, it's being done. Hal put off worked on this stuff, you know, and, um, I just wish that he talked about it more or that it was explored more. And I think, you know, maybe the reasons are that because they're afraid of, you know, who might get this technology or how quickly it, it advances or develops. Um, but I'm afraid of what might happen if it doesn't develop quickly enough. Uh, right. Also, you know, and also they talk about this, it's a, it's a playing ground field, you know, leveler. You have this technology, it's, it's going to make us all gods, kind mm. of essentially. So we're going to have to, humanity is going to have to go through this process of growing up and, and right. it's, it's kind of like humanity is, is we're hitting puberty or adulthood, you know, this, this, we're, you know, we're, we have to give away our childlike ways and realize we're part of a much bigger universe, a much bigger cosmos. If, if these technologies do exist and if we're going to wield them and, and utilize them, we need to, you know, evolve not just technologically, but spiritually as well to, to, so that we don't destroy everything once we have the power to wield that, you know, ability, you know, oh. that's a great fucking way to end this thing, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, dude, thanks for having me, man. It was like, my I, again, pleasure, bro. Missed my flight. <laughs> I'm going to Yeah, we missed your flight, tomorrow. but we'll book you a new flight. Um, and you got to get someone on here to debate me and have me come back on again sometime, man. This will be awesome. I'm a hundred percent going to have you back on. Um, Hell yeah. there's no question about that. Uh, you completely just blew my mind. I'm going to have to watch this back like three or four times to really <laughs> grasp it. But um, so again, tell people where they can find your, more your work, your videos, the talks that yeah. you're doing. So I'm Alien Scientist on, on YouTube and uh, my email is thealienscientist, one word, at gmail.com. And if you want links or sources for anything I discussed or more information or want to share something or anything, drop me an email, send me a line. And uh, I'm alien underbar scientist on Twitter and uh, subscribe to me on there. And I'm working on a Rumble and an Odyssey account to back up some of my videos and stuff, but I haven't quite got that set up yet. So um, thank you again, man. <laughs> I'll link all your uh, I'll link all your stuff below so people can look at it and check it out. Thanks, man. Yeah. Feel free to contact me and, uh, you know, 
I, I've, I got sources and papers for days. If you, if you want to get into this, it'll be, I'll keep you busy for the next four years. Cool. <laughs> All right, dude. Thanks again. And uh, good night, world. Sleep tight. <laughs>